We all know the right way to play these days. You draft your ace starter early, right? Eh, maybe not. I'll ask Todd Zola from Masters Ball and Rotowire next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February the 8th. It's show number two of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with Todd Zola from Masters Ball and Rotowire. You know Todd. He'll be discussing why not to draft aces early, tiered drafting, hacking the system, Ziddy, his boons and banes, and more. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at JT Real Muto, Jorge Alfaro, Buster Posey, and other players who aren't catchers. And from the American League, Jock Thompson looks at Shohei Otani, Freddie Galvis, Willie Calhoun, and other American leaguers. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our frequent flyer commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Texas third baseman Patrick Wisdom. And in our Market Watch position preview segment, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at middle infielders. And finally, in Master Notes, I'll be dispensing a little Patrick Wisdom talking about the real Muto trade. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? A big trade to get the week rolling? we got to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Todd Zola from Masters Ball and Rotowire. Todd, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's been a while. Yeah, I've missed our little talks, and I think I've missed our, our pre-talks even more. Well, let's get started. Uh, we're in draft season, especially in the experts' leagues, where a lot of mocks and uh, draft and holds have been going on. How many leagues are you in this season? Uh, probably It's the same as normal. I think, I think double digits, and a lot of them are... I'm into the best ball format, so you know if I say the number, it seems outrageous. But when the draft's over, I'm done. Right. So uh, I, I I like the I like some of the best balls now. They're fun. You get the the draft next. You know you, I haven't made a pick in three days, so you do it best ball and you're done. Well, let's go get on with your uh, with your column at RotoWire, the uh, Z files. You had an interesting double header there back to back about the new conventional wisdom that says we need to draft our ace starting pitchers early. Now let's start with the first column of the two. You called it Chasing Aces, and in it, you argued that the new conventional wisdom might be wrong. With the increasing scarcity of 200-inning high strikeout pitchers, the guys who can anchor our rotations with wins and strikeouts and great decimals, why shouldn't we be chasing our aces before they're all gone? It's not that we shouldn't. It's, 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 it's that it's not obligatory. There's more you, know, you can win leagues in more than one way, and... I'm hearing a lot of people out there, and I mean, we're a little NFE-centric at this point, this point of the year, because that's kind of all that's going on. So maybe there was a bit of an NFBC National Fantasy Baseball Championship tilt to the piece, but the ideas transcended to the FSTA draft, where you would heard even even someone like Ron Chandler said, "I can't believe I'm doing this. I'm taking a picture in Jacob the first DeGrom, round." Yep. And so there's nothing wrong with it. But my point being, it's it's you don't have to. 
And what's happening is people are hearing this advice and, and they're, they're forcing pitchers that maybe there's another pick. It's better to take a hitter than that particular pitcher at that point in time. Um, my, my, my main point is you don't have to. There, the If you think about it and you understand the player pool and you understand putting a roster together, there are ways to win without drafting aces, but the, the it, it's hard work and it involves some prep. But, you know, if you if you if you're in a draft and you don't draft an ace, you don't have to quit right then and there there. You, you can still win, folks. One of your arguments has to do with the uh, relatively wide expected variance in the wins category. How did that figure into this strategic approach? Yeah, now the the repercussion, the main repercussion of not drafting aces is the strikeout category. Because behind sort of behind the whole thing is that the old mantra bully hitting manage pitching, which used to be the the main strategy, it, it can now be brought back to the forefront. And the the one pitching category that can really be bullied or is bullied is strikeouts. Wins is a counting stat, but I mean you can you can have better pitchers on on better teams. You could focus on some of these uh, followers or primary pitchers that the Tampa Bay Rays are using and potentially some other teams that can get wins with fewer than five innings. So there are logical ways that you can try to bully up wins. But the category itself, it's, I, don't, I don't worry as much about it I don't, uh, because you're, if you take care of everything else, wins should follow. And if they don't, I mean, it's not going to say it's not your fault. But you know, if you if you take care of everything else, if you use some of the other guidelines in the in the in the plan, wins should follow. You also made an interesting point uh, about the number of high volume batters. Now, the argument that we need to draft these ace starters is there's very few of them, and the fall off is pretty uh, pretty great, especially with regard to the counting stats, mainly strikeouts, but is but wins included as well. And the point you made in the column, which I think was a terrific one is that the same thing is true of the of the really top hitters. There's a fall-off, and you have to account for it, and the fall-off may even be worse than the fall-off for pitchers. Yeah, and this is sort of, understand, mentioned, alluded to a second ago, understanding the player pool, uh, this is different than a few years back when we, you know, I think, you know, this time two or three years ago, you were probably asking me, why should we be drafting pitchers so early? And one of the reasons I would give is, well, the the player pool, the hitting the hitting side of the ledger, is fairly flat, and you can still uh, pound up some hitters waiting to this. You know, not so much waiting, but if you if you pick a, a second or third or fourth round and you have some pitchers mixed in, you can still pound up the hitting because of the way the player pool set up. It's not that way anymore. Whether it be injuries or just the way teams are are using their their players, and I think it also has to do with the striation of the of the teams going for it and the teams not going for it, you get these super lineups that turn themselves over, so they get more plate appearances in the Houston's and the and the Red Sox and the Yankees and some you know those are three main and American League and, and some of the you know the Rockies always do just because of the the park, but you know you, you, I think that there's, there's there's just the top to bottom distribution is bigger, so that there's just some loaded teams with really good players that play all the time and you can't have everything, and if you're drafting an ace, 
there, you're passing on a hitter that's got 650 plate appearances and is on a good team, etc. So that, that's sort of the the, the, the the central point of the idea being um, you can actually absolutely destroy the hitting categories. You can crush them if you overload on these batters. You can bully the hitting. You can't manage hitting. You can still manage pitching. You can still manage ratios. Yeah, you probably fall short in strikeouts. But you you can you cannot manage hitting. You can manage the pitching. So bully up the hitting. Finish higher than fourth place, which is the target in a 15-team league to win. Finish top three across the board in the hitting. And you have a little bit of leeway with the pitching that you don't have to you don't have to finish top four, um, and you probably won't without an ace. Yeah, and and in addition to that, you you also have the closers, which which are not covered in this analysis. And so if you manage your closers correctly or if you if you uh, luck into some saves or however you do uh, manage that category you could you know finish in the upper half of the saves category which gives you even more leeway on the other categories uh, in the pitching side especially wins and strikeouts where now you have even more room to go down a little bit because the uh the the very good performance in hitting plus potentially the good performance in saves gives you that room yeah, and I I did I you're right, I did I did not talk closers. I mean you can you if you really crush the hitting in the first four maybe five rounds, you're not going to want to take a top closer because now you need to start taking your pitching, but you can you can take some pretty good closers too. So absolutely, and I guess maybe I should have made a point in one of the two pieces that you know you treat saves as normal as it were, but absolutely, and it it, it kind of helps to help the strikeouts if you can get a closer that can contribute in the strikeout categories as well. But I think intrinsic to it is you're not going to want to take, uh, at this point, Edwin Diaz or, or I guess Jansen and Kimbrell are still going pretty high. And part of it, I mean, we'll probably talk closers down the line if you, you talk closers to a lot of your guests. The closing pool is bizarre this year in that they're just the top level. There's questions amongst the top level. The Craig Kimbrell, Kenley Jansen, and I think even to a certain extent Edwin Diaz because we, you know, I, it's a good team, the Mets, but it was just a year ago. You know, past years, his his numbers were great. In 2017, the ratios weren't so great, and they were really good in 2016. But he had that 2017 year in there. You, it, there's some risk. There's more risk in Edwin Diaz being the top closer than Kimbrel or Jansen have been in the past couple of years. So, the closing pool, and you know, it, 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 it's it's kind of it's a bit it's, it's a bit different. The top end of it is. And we're talking closers, so there's, you know, the asterisk anyway, because who knows about the top end of the closing pool. But at least on paper, it's not as strong as it's as it's been in recent years. But I think you you said the key point here, and I think you're exactly right about it, is that you're not even discussing closers when you're talking about the hitter starting pitcher balance. You just got to do your closers the way you would normally do your closers with the expectation yeah. that if you do it right, you're going to be all right in the saves category. So put that to one side and say, you, you know, your goal is to finish mm-hmm. with eight points in the category and that's fine. It's all the rest of it that matters. And I, to me, the most critical part of that argument was a table you put in showing the ADPs and how the really productive hitters, the really top hitters, they fall off pretty rapidly. And I know I, I mentioned that earlier, but what does this critical table really tell us? Yeah, and this is the key. And and people that are not, that are that are obstinate or they just, you know, just, I don't want to use the word ignorant, but just they don't believe me and they you have to draft pitching, you have to draft pitching. 
They, this is the point they don't get. They say, I can get power late. I can get, you know, I can chase, there's, there's still power available late. And there is. The problem is, it does not come with the same runs in RBI. It does not come with the same production than the power early. You draft a, uh, you draft a 30 home run hitter early, and he's you know, going to get 100 runs in RBI. You draft Hunter Renfro later for 30 homers, and he's going to get 80 runs in RBI. So you are falling short in two of the counting stats. You know, I, I kind of, at the beginning, cop to the fact that you're going to lose out on, on strikeouts. The difference is you're now losing out on two counting stat categories, runs in RBI, and potentially stolen bases too, you know, because Mookie Betts is going to give you 30 homers. He's also going to give you right. 30 steals. So you're falling behind. If you, if by ch- you can make your... If you're drafting the targets, you can make your home run target, but you know what? You're not going to make your other targets. So I, you know, I keep hearing you can get power late. I can get Daniel Palka. He's going to hit me 25 bombs. Yeah, he is. He's going to get you 65 RBI and and 50 runs though. I'm just make. I don't. These aren't my projections. I'm kind of maybe a little bit hyperbolic. But the point being, you can get. You can make up your home run chase, but you're going to fall behind and multiple counting stats so this is where you can't bully them up you get the foundation early of the of the guy in the top lineups hitting top of the order so your 25 and your 30 home runs are bringing a lot more runs in rbi with them and there was a second flaw in the uh thinking or the strategy of grabbing that a starter early because kind of a corollary to it is once you've got your DeGrom or your Scherzer or somebody like that in the first round or maybe even a couple of guys, uh, you know, Garrett Cole in the second round if you were to go that route, the theory is you can now relax on your pitching till way later in the draft and you found a problem with that analysis as well. Yeah, you know what, I, to be honest, when, when I see, it used to be Kershaw and now when I see Scherzer, I follow that team. Because I'm initially I'm nervous. Oh darn, they've got the best pitcher in the league. Let's see how they build their team. And if they don't take another pitcher in the eighth and ninth round, I'm like cool, they wasted it. And you know I don't, I'm not as concerned about that team. When you take, when you draft these pitchers, you have to take advantage of what they're giving you, and you can't give it back by waiting and waiting and waiting. The end, the construction of your staff is the same as if you wait a little bit on pitching and, and built it and maybe uh, starting the third or fourth round or whatever. You've given back the edge, and what you've done is you've given up the opportunity cost of taking a hitter in Scherzer's spot. You've given up Nolan Arenado, or you've given up, you know, any, you know, J.D. Martinez, whoever it might be. You've given up uh, an incredible counting stat hitter. So, whereas the idea of the concentrating on hitting early is, all right, maybe I do better than fourth place. I get 15, 14, to 13 points in the category. Drafting a Scherzer, drafting Garrett Cole, drafting you know Aaron Nola, Jacob Degrom, you want to finish top three in the ERA and the wins and the strike. You know you want to finish top three in the pitching. Again, there's more variance, so that's to me that's an inherently risky move. I'd rather, if that's my goal, I'd rather try to do that with hitting than pitching, because so much more can go wrong with the pitching. But the point being, yeah, if if you're drafting a top pitcher, back him up. Because you've already given up the the edge in the hitting, don't give it up in the pitching too. Take advantage of it. Right. It almost sounds like you need to think about it in the same terms as we used to, which is you're going to bully the pitching and manage the hitting. I think it's difficult to do, as you suggested earlier. Something else that came to mind while you were making that point is that the there's a, another flaw here in the. Uh, 
in the in the scheme of drafting pitchers early, and that is that because all these true aces, the the Scherzers and the Degroms, are pushing up into the first round, it's kind of a rising tide that's lifting lifting the boat of all the other pitchers. And you mentioned Aaron Nola, and you mentioned Garrett Cole, and and that these are guys that ordinarily, if we were doing things the old way, would be third, fourth round type guys, maybe even fifth. They're sneaking up into the second and third, which means the the effect of the strategy is kind of compounding. Yeah, there, 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 there are pitchers dovetailing and, and uh, perhaps being drafted because you know you get caught up to that. I need an ace. If I don't draft this ace, so you know these you know aces are being moved up. Now I think guys like Cole and Degrom and Sale and Verlander they deserve to be there. I think you know, Louis Severino as well. Now, but you start to get into the, and this is going to, you know, maybe ruffle some feathers, but I'm, you know, I'm a little concerned about Blake Snell. Um, any any pitchers that improve their walk rates to the extent that he did, there's some risk that they lose that. And, you know, so I, he's being pushed way up. Um, uh, Jamison Tyone, who's, love, love him, you know, the, the, the future, that sort of thing. But by making him one of these, top three or four round aces and that's where he is now you've now you know the idea the 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 allure was you can get a you know a guy that's not established at a somewhat cheaper price you've now taken away you're paying for the upside is what i'm what i'm trying to slur in a in in too long a winded sort of manner so and 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 even mike clevenger some of these guys are that you know if you did a draft and if you if you did a draft in November and some of us did, you could get Clevenger in the sixth. Now he's one of these top four rounds. A lot of times, he is the second ace. A, a, a team wants to go, you know, Degrom and, and a second ace in the top four rounds, and that's where these Clevengers and Tyones, Jack Flaherty, that's where these guys are now going. Flaherty's another example of love the future, but you know we haven't seen it yet. So you're 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 paying. For something we haven't seen, it very well may occur, and maybe you're going to look like a genius, but still, you, we're paying for something that hasn't happened yet. So that's sort of what's happening. And then, you know, part of the, you know, part of the way that the strategy can work is these teams that are drafting these pitching pitchers early, either they take their two or they take their one and wait. It it then pushes the next tier down to the fifth round. So if you're lucky, you can get yourself a Mike Fultonevich or uh, Jose Barrios or someone like that. That's, you know, pretty darn good to be your, you know, they're not, they're not a the top 15, but they're top 20 or 25. So you're, you're starting your staff with a still a, an outside of an SP one on, on paper, but it can, you can make it work. Okay. And I, I know that what you said at the start, Todd, was that this is not a strategy per se. This is not an instruction manual. This is a more philosophical argument about what you, things we need to think about. But if a, if an owner out there who's listening to this podcast thinks to himself, I think Zola is right here. I think that the, there's too much emphasis on pitching, whatever. I, th- I think I'm going to go back to the old way of bullying my hitting and managing my pitching. How many rounds into a 15, uh, in a 15 team mixed, how many rounds down are we going to keep drafting batters before we start considering starters? My, you know, I, the, the, the few, the, the, the handful of drafts that I've done, it's been the fifth or the sixth. Now, if it's the sixth, it's because I'm close to the wheel and 
you know, I could have flipped them and it could have been the fifth. So I'm usually starting with five hitters. And another advantage to starting with five hitters is we haven't even, you know, we haven't talked about speed. And I know you, you mentioned a little bit with Ray, Ray last week, the whole speed conundrum. If you're starting with five hitters, you're going to get a stolen base foundation and you don't have to chase Malik Smith or someone later. So and that's sort of another advantage. You know, if you're taking two starters in the first four picks and you're trying to make power up, you can't make up power and speed. So that's sort of another advantage. So with my within my first five picks, I'm getting, you know, a, a Gene Segura, you know, someone someone like that that gives me somewhat of a foundation and that just helps me further along the I need to crush all five, you know, knock on wood batting average dovetails but I need to crush the, at least the four counting stats and hope that I'm picking good enough players to keep the batting average afloat. And, of course, that's one of the advantages of having an early pick is that you can grab Trout or Betts, and these are kind of 30-30 yeah. guys. But uh, when you get a little farther down the first round and you're supposed that you've committed yourself to grabbing a hitter in the first round, but you're down around 9 or 10, do you start looking at the Trey Turners of the world? Are you gonna uh, if Nolan Arenado's available? Do you just take that four category guy with the with the big power numbers, or do you lean more towards a Trey Turner who's going to give you fewer home runs and fewer RBIs, but he's going to provide you with that good uh, stolen base foundation? I mean, you know, getting a little specific, Turner has to drop a ways for me because I still want the the power. I can still I can get my Gene Segura a little bit later. I still I still want to fo- focus on the power, and so yeah. If I'm looking at Turner, I'd rather get I'd rather go for the Arenado like you mentioned, or, or someone to that effect. Um, Yelich is probably gone at that point, but sometimes you never know. Sometimes he falls, but yeah, Turner. I don't know. The upside is so huge, you know. He, he but. He isn't a guy that I don't think I've ever drafted him, and, and usually there is a, a somebody with power. I I'll take Giancarlo Stanton. You know, my rankings have Turner a little bit ahead, but team structure wise, I think Stanton's going to be fine this year. I think the whole narrative about the you can't hit in the clutch and this and that and the other thing. This is a guy that that you know projection models say should hit 55 homers in Yankee Stadium. Now the park factors aren't going to carry over linearly from Miami. But I think what we see, you know, 38 homers is a bad year for Stanton. That, that just that kind of blows my mind that everybody's complaining about what he did last year. You know, I think the baseline is in the mid-40s, and I'm expecting big things from Stanton this year, so I don't hesitate to take him in the la- in the back half of the first round. I was looking at a set of projections from somebody somewhere, and uh, it, Aaron Judge was actually considered the fourth most valuable uh, hitter, uh, actually player, by their projection, and I thought, wow, that's surprising to me, but the projection was very optimistic on Aaron Judge. What do you think? I, um, I'm fairly optimistic as well. I, I, have, I have Stanton a little bit ahead of Judge, but I think the, the, the two of them combined are going to hit, you know, 85 homers. If there's a prop bet out there, I don't do the bets, but, you know, give me a prop bet of 85 over and under for Stanton and Judge, and and I, I probably would take the over on that. I, I think that the he is going to have a uh, a really good year. I think that Stanton will hit a little bit more power, and I think Judge will have a little bit better batting average and maybe extra bag or two. But I mean, to me, they're fundamentally you know the same. They're they're they should be ranked neck and neck next to each other. And if you just want a tiny bit more power for Stanton and a maybe a tiny bit more batting average, it's Judge. 
as a Red Sox fan, I'm not happy about this, but you know, I'm, I'm a fantasy analyst first, and that's what I think they're going to do. Well, it was a terrific column. I really enjoyed it, and it isn't so much for you know the idea that we can look at the column and know what to do, but it was a heck of a thing for getting you to stop and think about how you're going to do it. And I, I think that's the real value of columns like this. Uh, you know, I, I really don't enjoy that much columns where it says pick this guy then this guy then this guy target these guys and so forth i mean yeah it's interesting but if you read 10 of them you're going to get 10 different player sets so it's not you know not all that helpful uh then you had a follow-up column todd uh it was called practice what you preach and it clarified some of the points you made in the chasing aces column in particular you corrected a misapprehension from some readers that your message was categorically draft hitting while everyone is concentrating on pitching. And you said that wasn't the message. So just to clarify, what was the message? Yeah, I know there are probably people listening now and we're, you know, we're getting pretty in depth about the reasons and and, and the, the message could have gotten lost. I'm not saying this is how you go into your draft. I'm saying if you don't, you know, if, if, if you have an opportunity to draft Max Scherzer at the right spot, do it. In the second round, if you have the chance to draft Garrett Cole without chase, you know, without reaching for him, do it. I'm not saying you know you you can still be done. What I'm saying is that don't panic, and if you're prepared, um, and and I and I in the third the third piece that I just came out just came out yesterday, I actually outline exactly how to build a staff in this manner, the specific traits of pitchers that are neat that are, that are helpful to build a staff. So. And, you know, I'm hoping people that are listening, you know, you, you get so involved in the in the discussion, it, it, you, you forget the fact that Zola's not saying this is the way to, to win. He's saying you can win this way. Don't fret. Be prepared. And if it gets to the third round and you just don't feel like drafting Carlos Carrasco or Blake Snell or whoever you have to draft at that point to get your ace, don't. Don't worry about it. You can win in other ways. And then you did have some uh, experts drafts right after the Aces column came, so uh, you had a nice chance to practice what you preached. That was the title of the column, so I got asked, "Did you practice what you preached?" Yeah, this is kind of you know, kind of you know going to what I just mentioned about Scherzer. The first draft I had was a uh, an NFC draft champions, and I mentioned a lot of these a lot of this piece is sort of focusing on that because that's what's going on now. And I had the sixth pick. And if you know it, that's 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 perfect time to take Max Scherzer, but I had I had just written the piece and I just talked about it in some other media uh, podcasts and the radio and whatnot. So it's like I didn't even think to take Scherzer. I got to show him. I got to show him how to do this. So I took I don't know JD Martinez, whoever it might have been, and I and I I did I, I purposely didn't take a pitcher until whatever the fifth round or whatever it might have been. So I, I forced myself into practicing what I preached. Now. I hate to, you know, it was only $150. Well, that's a lot more than, people don't spend $150 in, you know, uh, overall in the fantasy. You know, it's for fun. It's a hobby. So when I say it was an only $150 league, what I mean is the, the, the main event NFBC are 10 times that. So relative to the other high stakes league, it was only 150 I don't want to make it sound like, I've, you know, money falling, you know, out of trees and I can burn 150 bucks left and right. But the point, you know, the fact that it was in a, a this a lesser satellite type of league, I didn't get all that mad at myself that I uh, that I didn't take Scherzer. Um, I didn't purposely do it to give column fodder. I was just so focused on, I don't know, the guilt of, of not doing it. So uh, and then a little bit afterwards, we're doing a an NFPC 
sponsored uh, draft of the First Pitch Arizona speakers. So several of the uh, the speakers from First Pitch Arizona, Greg Ambrosius gets us together and we have a, a league there. Now this is for bragging rights. There There isn't money on the line. It's just a lot of bragging rights amongst friends. And trust me, folks, we, we care. We want to win this league. It's not just, you know, it's uh, I want to win some of the leagues amongst my industry mates as much as I do new leagues that I happen to have a couple jelly beans on. So I actually took Luis Severino in the second round. So I didn't, you know, at least to that point, um, fade pitching, if you will. But it turns out that I kind of ended up doing it because I didn't back him up right away. And ultimately, the, the team looks a lot like it would if I didn't take a pitcher to the fourth or fifth round just because I waited a little bit longer to back up Severino. So, um, but because I only took, you know, a guy in the second round, I didn't give back all the counting stats that you do if you take two of the first four pitchers, et cetera. So it's kind of interesting, you know, we're, and people are in both in both instances, people are curious how the teams will end up because, you know, it, it is against the grade, a grain. And, um, you know, I'm curious, too. I'm curious, three. And uh, I'm wondering, going back to that uh, <laughs> That team you mentioned in the earlier draft where you could have taken Scherzer but elected to take Martinez or some power source, in the aftermath of that, and you deliberately followed this philosophical approach more rigidly than perhaps even you would recommend to that anybody else do, uh, in fact, that exactly what you said. Ordinarily, you would have taken Scherzer, but because you were proving a point to yourself, you took um, the power guy, and then you didn't take a pitcher till well into the draft. In hindsight, when you look at that team... How'd you like it? I like it. Now, in, in this, and I think I make this point in a few different places. When you look at a team of this nature, especially when you look at the pitching staff, all you're going you're gonna to see names. And you go, that guy's not that good. Derek Holland, he's not that good. Um, some of the back-end pitchers. But the, the, the beauty of this, not so the beauty, but part, of, part and parcel to this uh, strategy, if you will, is streaming is is doing some real hard work in season you know i'm looking at the staff now and i'm seeing uh wade leblanc ugh, you know whatever you know and and uh ross stripling is he is he again is he going to start and uh colin McHugh, are they going to temper his innings the point being when these guys start on a per appearance basis they're really really good and that's what you want to do is you want to start Derek holland when he's at home you want to start Wade LeBlanc when he's at home, um, you know, that that sort of thing. You want to start Ryan Yarbrough when the opposing lineup is going to have some lefties at the beginning. You know, they're going to they're going to have some lefties in it that they aren't going to take out. So you want to that's what I'm saying at the very beginning as our talk that takes some work. This isn't for someone who doesn't want to put in the effort during the season. It takes it's managing pitching isn't easy. It's hard and it obviously involves some luck. But yeah, I ended. I like I like what I see with the hitting, and we we talk closing. We talk closers. It's an NFB. It's a draft champion. So there's no there's no replacements. Ended with Ken Giles, Jose Alvarado, which I'm a little bit you know I don't love. I mean they're not the top tier, but they, I you know I could have 80 saves there and and back them up with Jose Castillo, who I think could potentially be closing if they trade Kirby Yates. So I got some saves. I don't think I'm going to finish last in the category. I'm probably not going to win it. But, you know, I, I address the saves, you know, middle-of-the-pack fashion. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola from Masters Ball and from Rotowire. And, 
Todd, uh, in an earlier column, you took on another uh, conventional wisdom, tiered drafting. And I was struck by your observation in that column. And you said, and I quote, tiered drafting is really just bookkeeping. What did that mean? Yeah, I, I've had some people that, you know, that, that tell me they don't believe in tiers because, you know, it, what's to differentiate this tier from that tier? And that's the truth. Now, tier drafting, it's it's a shorthand in that you can't just go, you can't just do tiers without understanding where the tiers come from. And, you know, this guy's a power guy, this guy's a speed guy or, or whatever. You have to actually, you have to really, really understand having done your research, having done your due diligence, having really prepared, and you just you just want and, and you're a minimalist coming into the draft. You just want the least amount of material to show you the maximum amount of information. And that to me what tiers is. And you have to break you know, if you're tiers, you gotta break them up somewhere. But on the other hand, you're gonna know that the you know if, if the idea being the top guy in a tier and the bottom guy in a tier are fundamentally the same you kind of got to know that the bottom guy of one tier and the top guy of the tier below it, well, you know, they're kind of the same. Too. I mean, they're not the same, but they're, they're, they're close. You have to understand that the that the, it's kind of fluid. You have demarcate, you know, you have demarcation, you have lines that, that, that separate them, but you, you, it's still somewhat of a fluid situation. So that's what I'm kind of meaning by saying it's bookkeeping in that, I, I, I kind of know when I look at the players what, what I'm going to get from them, what I expect from them. Maybe I have some, some notes about you know upside, downside, off to the side. But to me, the tiers are more of just a way to well, – I use to cross off the names. As opposed to having a cheat sheet where you cross off the names, my cheat sheet is designed in tiers, and it just gives me a little bit more information. And I can look at the tier – and I can see, especially in an auction, well, there's five or six players clustered in this position, so I don't need to buy this player who's out now because I, I, I'm fairly certain I'll get one of these five or six later. Um, so it's not it, – the, the, those that say that tiers are no good because, the, you know, the what's to say that the top guy in one tier and the bottom guy and the one above it aren't close? They are. You just have to know that. You, it, it's not strict. So if you if you understand that, to me it's just my way of and again instead of crossing out a list of one to three fifty and crossing them out, I cross them out by tiers and it gives me an extra little bit of eyeballing where players are going and and, and who's what what positions are still uh, have more more or fewer players available. I thought that was the key too, and as soon as I read the first part of the column, my first thought was. Yeah, but the the projections are you know very variable anyway, and we all we all accept that there's a huge error bar, especially as you start getting into the middle of the of the field where you're you know nine, ten, eleven, twelve dollar guys. If you assume there's a you know fifteen percent possible error bar, then a nine dollar guy could be a twelve dollar guy, and a twelve dollar guy could be a nine dollar guy, and the whole thing could be scrambled beyond recognition and so to me the the idea of tiering has has always been it's not necessarily by value it's kind of in clumps of what i want and and i'll take an 11 dollar yeah. guy and happily put him in the nine dollar tier if i don't want him it just means that the only way i'm taking him is if he falls down to a point where the, he's much likelier to be a bargain for me so the tiering is a combination of assessing the value and then ranking the value according to more subjective considerations rather than purely objective ones. Because as you said, 
there are no objective considerations here. The projections themselves are fallible. The uh, um, the error bars are wide. It just doesn't make sense to to plonk them into fifteen player chunks by value and say that's my that's my draft plan. Yeah, to be honest, I think people that that poo poo ch- tears also are, are anti projection. You know, they 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 more of a you know field drafter anyway that they don't do a projection and put in a little black box and come up with a, you know, $34 and 62 cents, uh, value, if you will. I, so, so if you, if you understand what a projection is and that it's a range and that it's an, uh, it's a midpoint or the most likely, uh, occurrence if the league was run a million times or however you want to frame it, then if you understand the, you know, the kind of the, what a projection really is, then maybe you have a better feel for what a tier is useful. If you don't even, you know, if you're not a projection guy, and quite honestly, anybody who plays the game, they may not use a spreadsheet. But as long as you have an expectation, you know, you're you're making a projection, folks. You don't use projections. Well, if you, yes, you do. You just don't have an algorithm and a spreadsheet and a VLOOKUP and a, you know, and everything else. Your 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 expectation. Maybe it's more of a prediction, if you want to get semantic about it. But um, still, your expectation for the player. You know, we just have different ways to go about doing it. So if you understand what even the formulaic prediction is, you can understand how the tiers can be useful. Very well said, Todd. This has been great stuff. Uh, Can you take a breather and come back a little later on for part two? Absolutely. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball and Rotowire and is a frequent and welcome guest here at Baseball HQ Radio. As he said, Todd will be back in just a few minutes. In the meantime, when we come back from our break, our National League and American League news reports, Nick and Jock coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Ernie Shore was the perfect one when Babe Ruth, he got the thumb for a price they sent him down to old New York. Things went bad till Cronin came. 46, they won again. The Sox had Tex and Pesky team with Bobby Dork. I'm talking baseball. West Farrell and Doc Kramer. Boston baseball. Scientists, the Hall of Famers. Dominic Parnell and Jimmy Fox. The Thumper just waiting in the box. Talking baseball. Baseball and the Sox. There were triple crowns and MVPs. He hit the ball with grace and ease. Teddy was as splendid as they come. Then Yastrzemski got the call. In 67, he did it all. And the pennant was flying high before his work was done. I'm talking baseball. Jackie Jensen, Reggie Pearsall, Boston baseball. Reynolds Rico and Don Schwal. Tony C, the monster, Ike the Lock. Lon Borg and the strange glove of the dock. We're talking baseball, baseball and the socks. Talking baseball in New England. Aganis and Smokey Joe. Stevens three hits in one inning. Carlton Fisk and Freddie Lynn. Please come to Boston in the spring. It's a beautiful thing. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our player news reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League. And leading off, it's the National League report. 
and our old pal, Baseball HQ analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here. Lots of news this week. Indeed, there is the big news involving the trading Phillies, emulating their basketball cousins in the NBA by making a major deal. They acquire catcher J.T. Real Muto from the Marlins, giving up catcher Jorge Alfaro and a couple of minor leaguers, Sixto Sanchez and Will Stewart, as well as an international bonus slot. Obviously, Real Muto takes over as the starting catcher in Philadelphia. How does the move look for him as a fantasy asset? Well, you know, Real Muto is probably the top fantasy catcher on the board in what is really a very, very bad pool and was while he was in Miami. A very productive player, double-digit fantasy value of the last three seasons, double-digit home runs, uh, average high of 50s runs and RBIs, including 74 of each last year, a batting average in the 270s with a 303 on his batting average chart in three, 2016, and maybe most intriguing, 31 stolen bases in the last four seasons, although only three last year. Really did not have a have a green light uh, to steal at all. Uh, consistent contact around 80%. Walk rate climbing uh, a point per year from the 3% he lodged in his first season to 7% last year. Not outstanding, but signs of growth and improvement. So, uh, really just a good, solid offensive catcher. And he's been a pretty solid, good athlete as well. Uh, Ten stolen bases a couple of years ago. Only three last year, but I wonder if that's because that's what Miami was doing or not doing on the base paths. And uh, now that he moves to Philadelphia, a bit more freewheeling of a team, uh, maybe that there's a possibility here that Rio Muto could end up being a stolen base source as a catcher. Yeah, I can see that happening too. I mean, Philly has run, has uh, over the last couple of seasons, uh, has had a fairly green light on the bases. They've had some speedsters and they've used them. But it might suggest that Romuto would get a green light here and there that he did not get when he was in Miami. A critical part of this story, Nick, might be the park change and the effect on home runs. And that's really the big story here. Uh, Marlins Park in Miami suppresses home runs by right-handed hitters by a minus 27%. Philly's uh, home, uh, park boosts right-handed home runs by 24%. We're looking at a 51% swing in terms of park effect on home runs. That's huge. Uh, and that should add, uh, I would guess, five to six home runs in terms of uh, over the course of the season for Romuto. And when you look at those percentages, you're looking maybe six or eight extra home runs here. Right. Could be looking at high 20s. Uh, could be approaching double-digit stolen bases. Uh, we're looking at a guy that can have a considerable amount of fantasy value. And when it comes to counting stats, of course, he moves into a much better lineup. Where does Rio Muto fit into this uh, batting order? It looks like it's stacked. Yeah, it does look like a stacked order at this point. It's, uh, I can't say for sure at this point. Uh, it looks like he'll be batting toward the middle of the order. I'll uh, be in a position to drive in table centers like Andrew McCutcheon and John Shigura. Uh, so, uh, you know, a, a lot of, uh, a lot of good stuff going on in, in possibilities for Romuto with that move to Philadelphia. And I should say, Nick, if anyone's worried about Real Muto as a right-handed hitter in a lineup that already has McCutcheon, Segura, and Reese Hoskins, Real Muto's actually had reverse splits in two of the last three seasons, although his regular platoon splits have applied in odd years like this one. Now, I don't know about you, Nick, but I don't put a lot of stock in these even-odd situations. How do you feel? No, I don't either. I think there's no there's no a statistical reason for that. So uh, unless the moon happens to align in some particular way with the uh, with the balls, but you know, I, it's uh, one of those things that I think just happens to show up here and there. So uh, I really don't think that's uh, anything we need to think about. And what do we think about uh, Jorge Alfaro moving to Miami? Well, you know, with, with Alfaro moving to Miami, we've got a reverse situation of what we had with Romuto. We've got a guy going. Uh, 
if there was a plus 51% for Ramuto, uh, there's a minus 51% for Alfaro. Uh, and, and, you know, Alfaro is a guy that we, we, we've been expecting to break out for a long time. Uh, certainly a good get for Miami in this case. And, and, uh, we know catchers mature later. He's only 26. So within a couple of years, Alfaro might break out. I wouldn't count on it this year, moving to a new park. Uh, right now we've got him pegged for 16 home runs and, uh, 52 RBIs. I don't know that we've done a downward adjustment since the trade, but kind of a $5, $6 catcher, uh, I, and probably worth less in Miami than he was in Philadelphia. I know some people, especially given the catcher situation, will look at Alfaro in 2018 and say, well, he's not the greatest catcher in the world, but hey, look at that batting average, you know, a 270 or whatever it was batting average last year. And I have to say, I think that it might be a bit of a mirage because he did sport a 42% hit rate. And Nick, uh, given the fact he's a catcher, he's slow afoot, I don't think he can sustain a 42% hit rate and the batting average that comes with it. No, I don't think it is either. If you look at, look at the hit rates, he had 42% hit rate in 2017, but that was really only at 107 at bats. So what we got is about a 40% hit rate over 450 major league at bats. Uh, probably not sustainable. Uh, would be my guess. I don't see anything in his profile that would say he can continue that. Uh, XBA last year was 213. So I would say the batting average has a considerable amount of downside. Even at that, though, given the catcher pool, Nick, maybe Jorge Alfaro is still worth looking at. Right. Uh, yeah, I would agree, too. I mean, you know, it's one of those things where the catcher pool is so bad that uh, Alfaro doesn't look at 5 to $6 value, doesn't look uh, all that bad in comparison to some of those guys that uh, some of the other choices you may have in drafts this year. Amen, brother. Uh, speaking of catchers, Nick, uh, we have some articles at BaseballHQ.com this week about downside hitters and the first one i'd like to talk about is a catcher buster posey uh, matt cedarholm writes a column called the big hurt he talks about injuries and in this column he was talking about carryover effects from injuries that occurred last year yeah it is a very interesting column and certainly worth everyone taking a look at but prior to the draft because it talks about uh those you know we, we know that injuries can carry over and that they're going to have an effect and frequently teams are much more positive about the uh uh, the outlook coming off an injury than uh, we know to be reality. Uh, a growing sense with, uh, and I'm going to quote Cedar Home a lot as I'm talking here, a growing sense that uh, that Posey's poor performance last year was primarily due to his hip issue, uh, torn labrum, uh, microfracture, bone spurs, uh, and that the off-season surgery would take care of all of that. And he would come back to his pre-injury form or maybe even better. Cedar Holmes says the history of players with hip labrum repair is very spotty. Uh, three players had labrum surgery in 2016, Colby Rasmus, Stephen Souza, Nick Ahmed. Of the three, one of them only lasted until May of the following season. Um, that was that was Rasmus. Uh, Souza showed very little change in stats, and one of them, Nick Ahmed, showed a big power lift uh, after, after returning. Uh, Todd Helton and Alex Rodriguez both had labrum surgeries in their late 30s. Both returned to about where they were pre-surgery, although Rodriguez missed an entire season. So in Posey's case, the damage was likely much worse than any of the examples. He's very high risk, I think, for 2019 uh, and would not recommend counting on much more than what he did in 2018. May get back to form, but I would say that's very, very far from certain. And I think there's another risk here, Nick, in the fact that this is a hip injury and, and the hips, the rotation of the hips is where batters generate their power. And uh, I think 
given the fact that his hip may be compromised in some way, uh, we were told that the uh, surgery was more serious than in other past players. I think this is a real concern that he could come back and play and still not be anything close to what we expect. Yeah, I think so. I, I would agree on that. And, and I think I would be very careful. Uh, we may not get a full season out of Posey. I mean, this is a this is very serious surgery. Uh, he may look fine in spring training, but it's the kind of thing that he may not last through the entire season uh, as he's trying to recover from that sort of surgery. Yeah, I forgot about the whole idea of catchers and putting that added strain on there. Uh, we talked last week, Nick, about the upside list in Ryan Bloomfield's speculator column, and this week he has his downside list from the baseball forecaster. And one of the National League hitters on the list is third baseman Johan Camargo in Atlanta. Yeah, Johan Camargo is a guy that I, I really like. I mean, I had him on, a, on two teams last year. He was uh, he could play all over the place as a utility player, so I could stick him in whenever I had an issue. Uh, a nice guy to have on your on your roster. But uh, we we said in the forecast there's some potential downside. The downside was uh, ten home runs, uh, under 400 at bats. And what Ryan says is that that his path to playing time took a hit when Atlanta signed Josh Donaldson to to play third base. I mean, certainly. Camargo was now blocked at that position. They're planning to use him in uh, a Marwin Gonzalez-type role, uh, which uh, really doubles as an optimistic offseason code for a utility guy, which is what he was a lot of the time last year. Um, Donald's has a lot of injury risk. Uh, Camargo is going to back up uh, Dansby Swanson at shortstop. Uh, again, uh, there's some possibility that the Swanson won't play well or, or be there the entire season. Some injury risk there as well. Um but what, what's what's clear is that at this point, for whatever reason, Atlanta doesn't seem comfortable handing Camargo an everyday role and having him in the lineup every single day. And for maybe some very good reason. Second half last year, Camargo had a fade in, in walk rate, a uh, fade in contact rate. His expected power index was down. Uh, so maybe his, uh, he was a bit ahead of himself, ahead of his skills uh, in the first part of 2018, uh, maybe the entire season. Uh, so we should expect a little pullback from that, from that as well. But at the same time, Nick, you mentioned that uh, the paths to playing time include Josh Donaldson, who is a very serious injury risk at this point, given his track record the last couple of years. And then you have shortstop Dansby Swanson, who has been underwhelming on a performance basis uh, for the last couple of years as well. So it, do it doesn't take a leap of imagination to me to see Johan Camargo somehow coming up with 500 plate appearances, replacing either or both of those guys when they're not playing for injury reasons or performance reasons or whatever. Plus, maybe around the infield elsewhere, maybe even in the outfield eventually, as some kind of super utility player, Marwin Gonzalez type or Tony Phillips back in the day, if you're old enough to remember. I think Johan Camargo might have paths to playing time that aren't sort of jumping out at us right now. Right. And I think that's a possibility. I, I, you know, it's, it's one of those interesting things that we'll have to see what happens. Uh, Camargo could find himself on the field a lot. He could find himself on the field less than he was a year ago. Uh, it's a very much up-in-the-air situation. I think you just need to decide what it is you want to pay for it at the draft table. We're projecting right now 11 home runs, 47 RBIs, 272 batting average. Uh, not at all bad for a guy who can play more than one position, and that's only projected at 348 at-bats. If the at-bats go back over 400, uh, those numbers, those counting stats go up, uh, and we have a very useful kind of player in a fantasy lineup, just don't want to overpay for it. And uh, if he does get up over 500, 
plate appearances. Now you're looking at a guy with maybe 15, 16 home runs, up to 70 uh, RBIs, and presumably a like number of runs. Right, very definitely. And Nick, since we're talking about upsides and downsides, Baseball HQ has a couple of pitchers who we report have some upside, and that starts with Juris Familia, relief pitcher for the Mets, and his name came up in what I thought was a really interesting column by Jeff Zimmerman about rosterable middle relievers. Yeah, this was this was a really good piece. I mean, it's one of those things you go into drafts and you figure you're not going to be able to draft all closers, and and so uh, what middle relievers do you use, or if you're even required to have a middle reliever, uh, who who do you want in that spot? And Familia came up as one of the uh, one of the top names. You remember Familia a year ago uh, was closing for the Mets, got traded to Oakland, now was re-signed by the Mets, which is always a good a good sign when a team re-signs a player they've dealt away. Uh, but but he's blocked at the closer. We've we've got uh, Diaz ahead of him this year. Uh, so not going to be the closer, but um, returns will return as a setup man and uh, some very nice projected stats for uh, for Familia in that role. 2.91 projected ERA, 1.17 whip. Uh, you could use about uh, about 70 or 80 innings of that very certainly. Uh, and 79 strikeouts projected in 64, uh, 64 games, 64 appearances, so about the same number of innings. So uh, it could be very helpful as a middle reliever. That's a nice column. I'd recommend everyone take a look at it. I thought it was a terrific column as well, because especially as we enter an era in fantasy baseball where there's a lot of streaming, which means you need a lot of replacements from your reserve list, you want to have a good handle on the middle relievers that are really going to help in that process. And Jeff Zimmerman did a great job uh, explaining who those guys are. Uh, speaking of uh, familiar, though, Nick, uh, team analyst Phil Hertz, who covers the Mets for BaseballHQ.com, had a pretty good capsule on Familia way back when he was signed. What he, he talks about is the fact that you should not count for saves from Familia. Uh, certainly the rest of everything there is good, but at this point, blocked by Edwin Diaz, not going to get saves, and so don't pay for that at the draft table. Well, Jeff Zimmerman was talking about rosterable middle relievers with very, very distant ADPs, which means they're going to be available very cheap, but it's not just them. Uh, Stephen Nickrand, our excellent starting pitcher buyer's guide columnist, has a column this week called Expected Control and Dominance Gainers, guys we expect to have better walk rates and strikeout rates. And he mentioned a bunch of pitchers with very deep ADPs, one of whom was Tyler Molly of the Reds. Yes, current current ADP for Tyler Molly is 562. So, you know, this is a guy that, unless you're in an extremely deep league, is again going to be free. Um, but an overlooked arm with some real skill upside. Uh, 10% swinging strike rate, a 6.3% first pitch, 63% first pitch strike rate last year, uh, suggested that his BPV perhaps should have been higher than the 61 that it was. Uh, control, 4.3 control, uh, 2.3 expected control. The one thing he needs to figure out is left-handers. Uh, very good against right-handers, 4.2 command against right-handers, but against lefties, only a 1.5 command. And so, that's something he still has to figure out. If that suddenly snaps into place, then Tyler Mali could be uh, quite valuable. And if you play in a league like many of us do with uh, fairly deep reserve leagues, Tyler Molly's the kind of guy you stash. If it works out, you, you keep him. If it doesn't work out, you cut him. It's not a huge loss. Right. And uh, again, uh, I recommend that column very strongly. A lot of other good names in there of, of pitchers you could pick up toward the end of a draft who uh, may have some value for you. Uh, and as you said, if they don't do it, just uh, just move on. All right, Nick, thanks very much. We'll have to move on ourselves to the American League. I do appreciate it, and we'll talk to you again next week. All right, thank you, Patrick. 
Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst for BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go, as I said, to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back. Patrick Davitt, good to be back. How are you? I'm doing well. A busy week and uh, looking forward to talking about some baseball with you. Unfortunately, there's not a lot to talk about. We're still waiting for Machado to sign, Harper, Kimbrell, Dallas Koichel, all of them sitting around waiting for the phone to ring, I guess, like uh, high school girls on a Saturday night. But uh, we did have some news out of your neck of the woods. The Los Angeles Angels have announced that uh, their DH, Shoei Otani, is not going to be ready to start the 2019 season. But they did have a, some positive news from his surgeon, according to the uh, general manager there. Otani's been cleared for full rehab, but he's not switching bringing a bat yet. Jock, you looked at this in playing time today. What can you add to the reports on Shoy Otani? Well, this wasn't anything that we hadn't anticipated. I, I, I wish the Angels could be a little more specific. I didn't expect them to be. Um, um, this is kind of a unique situation in that uh, Otani had Tommy John surgery in October. And of course, uh, they want to make sure that the pitching component is on track for 2020. And the Angels' um, PR and front office and uh, communications group has never been known for their their communication uh, communication skills on that. We we have him projected for a mid-May return, and that's just a guess. It could be early June. Like I said, I think the I think they're really looking for the 2020 pitching. They don't want to do anything to screw that up. On the other hand, Otani can hit as well, and. Uh, uh, Owners or would-be owners are wondering when he's going to come back and how often he's going to 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 uh, be in the lineup. I think he'll be in the once he returns, he's going to be in the lineup uh, pretty much every day, other than when he pitches or when he's doing routines that that uh, bring his arm back. So we're going to have to wait and see how that plays out. What are they going to do in the meantime? Well, they, they acquired uh, Justin Bohr. They, they signed him. He was a free agent. Um, this is a guy who's a left-handed bat. He's always hit righties pretty well. Big power bat. Uh, he struggled um, at the end of um, uh, 2018. In fact, he lost his playing time in, uh, in Florida. But even then, for the year, he had a, uh, an 819 OPS against right-handed hitters. And with that new lowered wall in right field in Anaheim, I, I think he, he might be a, a bit of a surprise. Uh, I think he's a platoon bat. Albert Pujols can't play first base anymore for the whole season. He, he probably shouldn't be out there for half a season. He's, his lower body's breaking down. He's 39 years old. Uh, he hit uh, under 20 homers for the first time last year. Uh, three more years left in this contract. Uh, it's going to be interesting to, to see what happens there. But uh, I suspect we'll start off with Bohr at first base, Pujols at DH, and then when Otani comes back, they will play it by ear. They also signed Tommy Listella. Any chance that he sees any action? Yeah, I think that's interesting too because um, the problem with Listella, it, it, it's my impression that uh, most managers don't like his hands and that's why he's uh, he's been a bench player because he can hit. He can hit line drives. He's a left-handed hitter. Um, it'll be interesting to see if they work him out at first base. They also have uh, a guy named Matt Thace who's been a long-time prospect, uh, seemingly a long time. He was a first-rounder that probably shouldn't have been. He's awaiting his turn at AAA. He has a plus-hit tool, not much power. He hit for a little more power last year, which uh, is encouraging, I guess, but uh, he still seems to have limited upside. So there are other options, but it's real questionable right now. In other news, we started close to your home. Now we'll move close to mine. The Toronto Blue Jays 
uh, signed a one-year deal with Freddie Galvis. And uh, I've been joking with friends saying, uh, if you're talking about Freddie Galvis, it's clearly a slow news week. But uh, maybe I'm being a little harsh on that. Uh, what do you think's going to go on with Freddie Galvis? Well, you know, Galvis has been capable of power bursts. Uh, he, he hit 20 home runs in Philly a couple years ago, nine home runs in the second half in San Diego. But otherwise, if you just look at his bat, he's a he's a 250 hitter um, um, with with average power at best. Uh, um, he's been he's been starting at shortstop for a lot of second tier clubs before coming over to Toronto, and now he's with another second tier club. At least at least this year he is. Um, I think he's going to start at shortstop to begin the year. I think that's why they got him. They signed him for for five million. And the thing you can't overlook in the real game is his glove. He's a he's a pretty good fielder. He's easily the best fielding shortstop that uh, that Toronto has. I, I think the real question is how this uh, what this does to uh, to Lourdes Gurriel, who I think is the, the the best offensive player right now that Toronto has in the middle of the infield at least up. Uh, I, I personally that trade to me signaled that they. They might move Gurriel all over the infield because he has played second base. He's played a little bit of third. Um, and he's not a bad glove anywhere. He's not as good as Galvis is at shortstop. Uh, but I still think they need his bat in the lineup uh, five, six days a week. Now, Galvis had a pretty nice little uh, hard contact bump uh, last year. And, and he's got above average speed. Matt Dodge pointed out in his playing time today analysis that, uh, you know, if you add together a bit of hard hit balls and some above average speed, you could have a batting average advantage with Freddie Galvis on the turf in Rogers Center. The ball gets through there pretty quickly. But even at that, uh, there's not a lot here beyond that. Suppose he hits 275 or 280 or something like that. Is there enough here beyond that? Any stolen bases? Any counting stats? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't think so. I mean, to, to jump up in the counting stats, you, you, you have to have a, a pretty good offense around you um i'm looking at the i'm looking at the blue jays right now and until vlad guerrero comes up and uh and boba shot we're not and we haven't started to talk about them yet uh, uh, uh you're, you're you're not gonna you're not gonna generate many many rbis but you know this is a guy again he's hit what 45 home runs in the last three years i guess is is nothing to sneeze at but if you look at the at bats he's also averaged 600 at bats each year of the last uh you know, three years. So 15 homers, 600 at bats. That's that's pretty average, or actually subpar power. You know, there. And uh, and if you're talking about maybe 270, 280 batting average upside, I'm looking at his history, and I don't see it. His best year was a 263 batting average in 2015. He hit 241 the year he hit 20 home runs. So maybe on the turf. Maybe you're right. Maybe in Toronto that happens. Uh, um, not a lot of big upside. Here. Not a lot of big upside anywhere in the middle infield in Toronto right now. You mentioned Gurriel. I've seen some love uh, in the various uh, magazines and websites and stuff talking about uh, what's going to go on in 2019. They lo- a lot of them like Lourdes Gurriel, but they also got Devon Travis, who can't stay on the field, not a bad hitter when he can. Plus, you add in Brandon Drury, who's been kind of a journeyman major leaguer, and Richard Urania is just not a good hitter at all. So I guess uh, we're waiting for Bo Bichette to come up, and I wonder if the signing of uh, Freddie Galvis is bad news for anybody who's got Bo Bichette on their dynasty roster because uh, it looks like they might be trying to delay calling him up, and that would be a really bad thing for Bo Bichette and his owners. Yeah, I, I think you're right, and I, and I think it does, doesn't does bode well for Bo Bichette. Uh, let's face it, uh, 
unless some sort of a miracle that I can't see coming happens. Uh, Toronto's not going to be competing with Boston and New York this year, so they're they're probably looking at Bichette's service time. Uh, maybe he can change their minds with a, a big spring or a big first half, but uh, my take is anyone looking looking for Bo Bichette to be up before mid-late July is, uh, is uh, very optimistic. Yeah, not that it has much to do with fantasy, but I'll be curious to see what happens if the Jays get off to a struggling start without Bichette and maybe even without Vlad Jr., depending on how spring training goes. And the fans will start getting restless, and they'll be wondering, why am I spending $90, $100, $120 for a seat to watch what is barely a AAA club? And the, and, the, and it's a AAA club that doesn't even have its best AAA players on it. You know, I, I think this is one of the challenges that baseball teams are going to have to figure out in the so-called, you know, tear down and rebuild process. While you're torn down, you're not very interesting to watch. Yeah, and, and this is one of the things that makes it really difficult to project fantasy-wise because, uh, let's face it, even a bad team can have a good a good month or a good six weeks, and, and a bad team can also look really bad at times, too. So it's, uh, it's, 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 it's really tough to figure out when, uh, when all, how all this might come about, but uh, obviously this is, this is going to be a down year for the Blue Jays overall. And a bad team can also have good players individually. I've been seeing some positive comments about Danny Jansen, the catcher, and I've even seen some uh, positive comments on Kevin Pillar, who's never been that great, but is sort of one of those reliable 15-15 guys who just doesn't have a batting average. It'll be interesting to watch. Uh, Toronto's going to be a, a poor team this year, as you say, so maybe it's time to look on somewhere else. I doubt that it's Kansas City, but they created a bit of a, a news story this week when they signed Brad Boxberger, which certainly muddies their closer situation. Uh, Matt Dodge again looked at the competition in his playing time tomorrow space covering the American League Central. Does Boxberger offer any competition for Willie Peralta? And are there other names we should be looking at in that bullpen race in Kansas City? Not that it's going to be that big a deal. Yeah, you know, it, obviously Boxberger's uh, acquisition makes the closer battle interesting as closer battles go, but I lean toward the um, should we even care as of opening day in this situation. You've got Willie Peralta who had the role at the end of last year. He may, he may keep it entering March, but even with the 14 saves he picked up in 2018, the expected ERA and control issues say his closer days are going to be short-lived. Uh, Boxberger has enjoyed more success historically than Peralta is, and, and he actually saved 32 games in 2018 for the Diamondbacks, but that came along with a 525 ERA in the second half. He lost his job. He has historical control issues, so he's not a stable long-term bet either. There's a few names they're talking about. Royal fans are talking about lefty Tim Hill. His metrics are better than either of the other two. Um, rookie um, Josh Stamont, uh Kyle Zimmer trying to make a comeback from years of, of shoulder and elbow issues. Richard Lovelady or Flyers. I, I wouldn't be rushing in to grab everything, anything here. And, and, and only some of these latter, less predictive names if one of them begins to get on a roll. Yeah, I think I'm with you on that analysis. Ordinarily, when you see one of these uh, bullpens in flux, you kind of start nosing around thinking, is there a potential closer I could nab here who's a clear sort of second-place guy and stash him on reserve in the hopes that maybe the, the incumbent fails or gets hurt or whatever, and then you can quickly slot in your replacement guy? I don't see who the first guy is. I don't see who the second guy is. I don't see who anybody is here. And we may not know until, you know, May before things settle out. And at that point, you're going to be bidding on fab for whoever they are. If they're in the free agent pool, it's going to cost you. 
Yeah, spring training may offer some hints depending on how some of these lesser names look. Uh, um, I, I've always been interested in Zimmer, but he's been on the DL and uh, you know in surgery more than more than not. Uh, um, so it's going to be interesting to see if his if his reclamation is uh, is real or not. Come March, they say he's throwing between 94 and 97 again. Uh, um, hope springs eternal, but uh, like if it's today, I'm not rushing out to to get him. That's for sure. Yeah, I don't want to wait an eternity to find out if I'm right. Is the problem I think going on there. Uh, Texas yeah. has also been busy recently. They made a couple of signings. Hunter Pence, late of the San Francisco Giants, at one time a pretty good fantasy asset. And Matt Davidson, who started the year strong last year, a lot of home runs, and he tailed off. Apparently, the interesting news of this signings, and, and I grant you it's not that interesting just on its face, but apparently they're looking at Matt Davidson not only as a home run hitter, but as a pitcher. Yeah, he tossed three scoreless innings uh, last year in the majors, and he's always had a good arm. And, and let's face it, uh, the Angels have had success with Otani. I'm not ever going to compare Davidson to Otani. Um, um, and with the scarcity of pitching right now, I think clubs are trying to get a little bit creative. So uh, these are both minor league contracts, and I think Davidson's going to work in the minors as a two-way player. See how that goes. Um, uh, th- this is a it's these are interesting signings uh pence is is well past prime if you look at his history i think he got 235 at bats last year he only hit 226 he's a 36 year old didn't show a lot of power um the uh the contact rate is uh, on the decline um he doesn't have a job in texas since obviously the same with davidson davidson actually as a right-handed pinch hitter or a corner corner infielder dh kind type off the bench uh he hits uh he hits um left-handed hitters you know, pretty well career 790 ops uh but the problem in texas is they have a lot of these guys uh, a lot of a lot of corner infielder dh left field types so um from an offensive standpoint and until there are injuries i'm not seeing how davidson you know breaks in here but uh, we'll see what happens and speaking of dh types in texas uh the Guys like Joey Gallo, of course, pop to mind. He has some other attributes that are pretty attractive in on-base leagues, especially going to hit a lot of home runs, not drive in too many because he strikes out so much. But then we've got Willie Calhoun. And I remember when uh, uh, at the Tout Wars draft that I was in last year, Willie Calhoun got drafted and everybody said, oh, I'm so disappointed that I didn't get Willie Calhoun because he was so hyped as a prospect and this was going to be the guy who was going to really do big things in texas didn't do anything of course and he was the focus uh, of your playing time tomorrow piece on flyers that we might want to take in the american league west uh, how does the signing affect uh willie calhoun first of all of these other two guys and uh, has it changed your opinion about willie calhoun's promise for 2019 well, yeah well these signings are obviously uh one of the things they're they're intended to do it seems to me is if calhoun flames at least they have some sort of experience backups behind him i'm really mixed on willie calhoun right now i mean the the good news like you suggested last year at this time and in the spring when drafts were being held everyone was going after willie calhoun he had hit 57 home runs in his previous two years at double a AA and triple a and he has ter- he has terrific plate skills he he projects as a 280 290 hitter um, his contact rate is well over 80%. Uh, um, and with the power that he brought, I mean, how many how many guys do you know in the majors that are hitting 280, 290 with the, cap- with the ability of hitting 25, 30 home runs? Uh, um, there's just not that many of them. 
but uh, like you said, uh, last year um, he had a bad uh, bad spring training. They sent him to AAA. The plate skills remain. The power completely disappeared. He hit nine home runs and 400-plus at-bats. Uh, normally power like this just doesn't disappear as, uh, uh, that quickly. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what he does in the Cactus League. But complicating complicating his outlook is he's a terrible fielder. He's a slow base runner. So if that power doesn't appear, he's on his way back to AAA. And uh, who knows what happens to him after that? He's he's really on the spot, I think, in the Cactus League this year. I agree, and I think his future might not be in Texas, in fact, as they look around and think one of the problems they've had from a roster construction point of view, as you mentioned, is that they've got all of these guys who are kind of big, lumbering power hitters and at some point you need to start thinking about defense you need to start thinking about base running all all of these kind of things as they enter a rebuilding project I know Willie Calhoun's a young guy and he's got the big power bat which looks impressive but at the same time if you're looking at it from a real baseball perspective you have to look at a guy like this and think he's kind of one-dimensional and maybe that's not what the Texas Rangers need for the next five years yeah, and if the power doesn't come back again, what it, where does he go? What does he do? So, you know, I mean, if if the power doesn't come back this year, you got to think it may not come back. Right, and if it if it doesn't come back in Texas, you got to believe it's going to have trouble coming back anywhere. Jock, uh, thanks a million. I do appreciate you taking the time, and we'll catch up with you again in a week. Sounds good, PD. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, also writes regularly at the site, and of course covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Take a quick break now when we come back, part two of our interview with Todd Zola from Masters Ball and Rotowire. Stay tuned, it's on Baseball HQ Radio. One and one to Williams. Everybody quiet now here at Fenway Park after they gave him a standing ovation of two minutes, knowing that this is probably his last time at bat. One out, nobody on, last of the eighth inning. Jack Fisher into his windup. Here's the pitch. Williams swings, and there's a long drive to deep right. That ball is gone, and it is gone. A home run for Ted Williams in his last time at bat in the Major League. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt here. Time now for part two of our feature interview with Todd Zola. From Masters Ball and Rotowire, Todd, welcome back. Excellent. Uh, great to be back with you. I'd like to talk with you about one more column I saw in the Z Files at Rotowire, and it's the one you titled uh, "Hacking the System." Now, you and I have spent a lot of time discussing what we might call the philosophy of projections and valuations, and I know from the column that you've been thinking about what you call a bug in conventional player valuation methodology. What's the bug? I had a feeling you'd want to talk about this because we've talked about. The repercussions of this a lot, and that we 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 talk, we'll get to it in a second. We talk about that it exists, but we've never figured out how to actually quantify it. The bug in conventional valuation is the assumption is made that whoever is being valued is active on a lineup for the entire season. Now, this is true at the beginning of the season, and it's it, it's true when people, you know, Mike Trout earned forty five dollars this year. Well, if it's in a 12-team league, that meant there were 144 non-catchers and 24 catchers given positive value. Even though during the course of the season, when you know when Tommy Pham or when somebody's when Ryan Braun, when someone is injured, someone else is playing. So there are more than 168 hitters that are on an active lineup. When we run the numbers, 
the assumption is made that only those 168 batters and we'll just to keep with the 12 team nine pitcher only those 108 pitchers provided value which is just not obviously just not the case especially with pitching you're you're backfilling all the time with injuries and therefore the replacement value is skewed yeah what you're what you're doing yeah that's part of it and what you're actually doing when you draft Mike Trout first or when you pay Forty dollars for Max Scherzer. You've now drafted your first hitting roster spot, which Mike Trout is going to be the first guy to occupy. You've now paid for your first pitching slot, which Max Scherzer is going to be the first and hopefully only, but he's going to be the first person. So you you paid forty dollars for that first pitching slot, and you're putting Max Scherzer on it on opening day. You paid a first-round draft pick for Mike Trout, and he's going to be on it opening day, hopefully the rest of the season. Um, so, you know, when, once you get further down and you pay for, I mentioned in the first segment, Colin McHugh. If you're paying whatever it might be, whatever spot for Colin McHugh, you're going to have somebody else on that spot. But you're only paying for Colin McHugh. But you're going to get more out of that spot. So even though you're paying, you know, you're giving, you're, you're paying $15 or whatever it might be for Colin McHugh, if, if you're expecting $20 from that spot, you can pay more than the conventional valuation engine says for McHugh. You're going to get $20 worth of, 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 of production out of that spot. And McHugh's 15 you can pay 16 17 18 or 19 and still come out with a positive return on your investment. Now, this is what we've talked about for years. And I, what I did in this piece is I actually estimated what we'd be putting on all these spots and actually quantifying it. So just to get a, all these years, we, we usually end the call with, well, yeah, multiple position guys, you pay more for. We've never actually said, how much more do you pay? How much more do you pay for Ryan Braun knowing you're going to replace him? Actually, Braun's a bad example because the thing with Braun is he's on again, off again. I mean, he doesn't. He's going to sit on the DL, but he also misses time during the week. So a, a, a better example is a player who can be expected to miss a stretch of time, and when he's healthy, he's in the lineup every day. Okay, then the, the question that pops into my mind is, if the projection system is reasonably well designed, then the the playing time expectation is priced in. And so if I spend $40 on Mike Trout, that's with the expectation that he's not going to miss any time or very little time. And, uh, if he misses enough time so that he has to be replaced, I can count in the, uh, I can count in the additional dollar value of whatever replacement guy I get, but I'm almost sure to lose money on the, on the transaction. Cause if I paid $40 for Mike Trout expecting 600 plate appearances and I lose 200, yeah, I can replace the 200 with a replacement level guy from the free agent pool, but those stats are not going to be Mike Trout stats. So in the aggregate, I'm actually losing money here. And, and uh, the, the inverse is true. If, if I get a guy who's, uh, uh, I, I pay for with a, 350 plate appearance expectation priced in and he, and he does deliver 350 plate appearances and I can add back in the replacement value, then that's where I, my profit is. It seems like the only source of profit is if you, if you buy a guy who's, who has injured, injury risk priced in, but not if you buy a guy who doesn't have injury risk priced in. Do you see what I'm saying? Oh, no, absolutely. And, and, 
you know, to be honest, Trout and Mookie Betts, they, it, it's amazing what they did last year. And they both missed a considerable chunk of time. Trout hurt his hand and Mookie had some, I don't remember exactly what Mookie, Mookie Betts had, but they both missed a pretty decent chunk of the season, which is kind of make what the both of them did even more head scratching, just kind of, you know, wow. Mm. So, um, you know, but yeah, maybe, maybe Manny Machado, a guy who's going to, has played or uh, has played 158 games, uh, you know, almost every one of the last couple seasons. Yeah. You're not going to get any discount. You know, if we want to talk a top player, maybe, uh, maybe a Bryce Harper is a guy that probably has a little bit of injury factored in. And yeah, you can add a little bit. You can pay a you know a buck or two for a Bryce Harper spot. We used to say that about Giancarlo Stanton, but the man has missed. You know, he's played two full seasons in a row. So we can say what we want about Stanton, but you can I don't you know he was uh he's one of those players that was injury prone until he wasn't. Well, when I think about Betts, and I think he's a really good example. So he's a 700 plate appearance guy. That's what that's what the expectation is. That's what the projection is. That's what the valuation is based on. And then he has 600 plate appearances because he gets hurt. Now you can replace the hundred lost plate appearances, but you're bound to lose money on the transaction because whoever you get to replace Mookie Betts is not going to be as good as Mookie Betts. And that's why it seems to me that the real opportunity here is with the guys that are projected to miss time. On a you know on an almost for sure basis. No, oh, absolutely. And we again we've talked about that. And and, and I don't, um, you know, and and I what actually what I did was I actually estimated, and depending on the league, a, a twelve-team AL only league is different than a twelve-team mixed league. Estimated in the piece what you're going to get, and kind of priced it, and and gave an actual number. This is what you could pay for. Uh, I, I use Tommy Pham a lot because he, he I think he's a, he's a guy that is probably going to miss a week or two at some point, and you can get a nice little bargain on 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 a Tommy Pham by paying an extra buck or two for him, in you know, getting from a, a fourth a fifth round to a fourth round or sixth round to a fifth round in that manner, and um, yeah, those are those absolutely, and the same with the pitching. I mentioned Colin McHugh. Um, it's not only injury players. It could be uh, Jesus Lazardo, who probably uh, is not probably going to pitch 32 start, pitch 32 games. He may he, he may be delayed. Um, they may the the A's may slow him down for a week or two. But you're going to backfill with a reliever or another starter with good matchups. So a, 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 even a pitcher, the, the, the same idea, you can backfill their stats. And I thought that was one of the real beauty ideas in the column. Because when I was thinking about this, my first thought was, you know where the real advantage here is guys who are projected for less than full-time playing time, for whatever reason. The, whoever's doing the projection thinks there's an injury risk or there's a playing time risk because they're Jesus Lazardo or Nick Senzel or somebody who might not start the year on the roster, all of these kind of things. So if you're, if you're willing to throw in a couple of extra beans into the pot on those guys because you know you're going to get something out of the replacement player, Imagine how much profit there is potentially if the projection guy was wrong and this player does get the full-time playing right. time. Then there's then the the potential becomes huge. No, exactly. I mean, you may luck in, you know, you know, you know the, the, the luck versus skill. Maybe you lucked into a, a replacement player that ended up being better. That too, yeah. Than the player, but that's, you know, you can't count on that. But sure. If uh if this is the season that Tommy Pham doesn't tweak something and doesn't have any issues and plays 150, 152 games, 
Right. You're, the replacement for Tommy Pham is Tommy Pham. Right. You know, and that that that's the uh, that's the beauty of it. I think so because you know I know. Uh, there's a kind of a fad going on in projections and stuff right now that says, let's look at every player in baseball and normalize them all to 600 plate appearances. So we understand what their value is if they get the 600 plate appearances. And when you do that, Tommy Pham goes from being, you know, a fourth round type of guy to being possibly a first round type of guy. But we always price in, he's not going to get 600 plate appearances. And so he might be exactly what you said is that if Tommy Pham plays the entire season, you get you get the projected Tommy Pham's 400 plate appearances, plus you get 200 plate appearances from his replacement, which is himself. Yeah, and uh, the same can go. The same goes for pitching, and and yeah, and you know it, it, exactly. And um, it, it actually wasn't this the, the actual piece you're talking about. I think I named some players that you can use this to the advantage. A few weeks previous, I wrote a piece that I called Finding Profit at the Margins, which is where I actually went through and came up with, I don't want to use mythical because I think they're real, came up with what I, what I feel are logical replacements uh, value and, 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 and found out how much each of the statistics is worth. And something to keep in mind when doing this, you mentioned replacement earlier. You've When you buy Mike, when you draft Mike Trout or, or pay for Max Scherzer or whoever, you've already paid for the replacement level at that spot. So you don't have to, uh, you know, whoever replacing, oh, I need to take out, to subtract out their replacement level. No, it's already accounted for. So any additional stats that you put on that roster spot over and above the player that you bought originally or drafted originally, those are those are bonus. Every single, you know, you, you realize the entire extent of them. You don't have to account for uh, uh, replacement on those because it's already taken care of with the guy that you first put on that spot. Because the valuation system itself is typically uh, value over replacement. Yeah, right. So it's already been accounted for. So if if, if you're, you know, if you figure you're going to get, you know, uh, you mentioned Senzel before, you know, we can bring him up. You know, he may not come up until midseason. Oh, he may come up in 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 the end of. He may get the Chris Bryant treatment. But let's say that that maybe Keston Huria is a better one because he's probably not going to come up for a little while. You can you could logically put. 10 homers and five steals and 25 runs in RBI over and above what you expect to get from him. And you don't have to say, well, replacement and mix is five homers and, you know, 20, whatever, and subtract that out. You get the full extent, at least, well, you get it. I mean, you get it as far as um, you know, on your standings, but as far as what you're going to pay for Huria, if I'm, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing uh, Milwaukee second baseman, uh, you you can add a couple of bucks to the little black box. You know, if, if you're projecting for 300 plate appearances, it's going to, the lowers, you know, the number is going to be lower. Um, when you add in these other things, you know, if it says $10, you can pay 12 or 13 because according to my numbers, you just added on $8 worth of stats. So you can, you know, split the difference and, you know, you pay the little, the, the least amount you can. But if you happen to be playing against someone that read my piece, they're going to price you up. And, and, you know, as long as you end up below, the 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 combined total then you're still getting a profit and i have one last question i read this column a while ago so forgive me if it was covered because i just and i just don't remember but is there a difference when we look at this in shallow leagues versus deep and i'm thinking especially like mixed versus ale only leagues because i was looking at it and i remember thinking well if i get mike trout 
in my American League only and he gets hurt, it's not like I'm going to get any kind of replacement. Like my replacement player may be below replacement value in a, in a global sense. I mean, of course he can't be, well, I guess he can be below replacement level at the start of the draft, but because there are going to be so few outfielders left and so few hitters left in general at the end of a only league draft, I know some guys, they'll just say, I'll carry the dead spot rather than lose the batting average and the minuscule counting stats I get. So is there a difference in the philosophy based on the depth of the league? Yeah, so I'll give you some actual numbers. This is referring back to the to the piece, finding uh, finding profit at the margins. Um, 10 homers, 10 steals, 30, arms, 30 RBI, and uh, a 260 batting average over 200 at bats. So this is a replacement player for, for you know someone coming in probably half the season or expected to miss half the season. In a 12-team mixed league, that's $22.30. I just before said you can't get that particular with, with pennies, and here I am. Uh, so we'll call it $22. In a 15-team mixed league, it's $21. So it's, it's a little bit less. It's a dollar less. Here's the difference, though, you're referring to. In a 12-team AL... Those stats are worth 12 bucks in an NL. They're worth 13, so they're about 10 dollars difference between the, the 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 12 team leagues. The the stats are worth probably you know they're not probably those those same stats are worth a lot more in the mixed league. So yeah, and and that's and so that's just the, the numbers themselves. And now you add in your your point, the very good point of those. You're probably not going to be able to get 10 homers and 10 steals from a replacement player in an AL or an NL only league. So now you're not even getting that much. So not only are the stats worth less, they're not even as, as available. So absolutely, this is a you know, not that you don't want to do this in a AL and NL only league. However, the it's it's much more important to do it in a mixed league because the availability, especially at the beginning of the year, when you know or assume Vlad Guerrero or Senzel or or uh, some of these th- these rookies are going to be uh, missing two or three weeks. You can you can get the full extent because at that point the replacement player is probably pretty good because especially if you do clever and maybe you draft a you know if you're getting Vlad you draft a utility as your third baseman uh, so that you can move him to utility after Vlad comes back or. Uh, manage your roster with multiple position players so that your the player is pretty darn good at the beginning of the season. Um, you, you might get the full extent later on into the season. Eh, you know, the replacement stats aren't so good for ANL. They're probably a lot better for mixed. And I thought that uh, you made that point in a couple of places, actually that uh, you're kind of better off with the rookie because you're going to get, the pick of the litter of the leftovers rather than if you pick Tommy Famine, he gets hurt in August, and yet now you're scraping around through the dregs of it. I think that's an excellent point as well. Uh, at your Masters Ball site late last season, I wanted to mention this. You had a spreadsheet that you introduced called Ziddy. What is Ziddy? <laughs> uh, Ziddy is my alter ego that used to come out when I was drinking. But uh, other than that, um, it's a it's – a, do, you, do you remember the old Roto Times – they had a, a, a thing where you can compare players. You can call three or four players up, and they would just have their a, a one-week, a two-week, a, a three-week stat spread. You know, you could, so if you're looking to make a trade or make a roster move, you, you had 
the numbers in front of you and you know, for for the three or four players that you're interested in. And if you remember that, I I used to love that feature of Roto Times. I built one myself once uh, on a spreadsheet yeah. where I could uh, you know use VLOOKUPs and and just have a have a, a a stat database. And if I was looking at three guys, I just typed their names in and I would get the get it to look up. I, I would way rather have had somebody else do it for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I'm doing. Great. That's what Zitty's going to be. Um, I'm act- I will keep it up to date during the season so that uh, and and I I. I missed it, and I said, "Geez, I can build this, and if I'm going to build it for me, I mean, you know, let's, let's use it for other people." So, and and um, so that's basically what it is. I'm going to download or upload, dump in the the stats every day, and there's going to be a couple different versions. One version is going to be you can you can set the, the the time frame. You're curious about you know whatever time frame you want, and then I'll, I'll just kind of have a, a version where it's preset to the last three days, seven days, 14 and 20, whatever it might be, so that all you need to do is type in the names and bing, bang, boom, the players come up from over that time period. Um, I, I've kind of used it. I kind of, I, the one I showed on the site was, uh, you know, it, it's the, the entire season. So I, I use it for research. The whole thing about are, are players streaky? You know, uh, you can look at rolling, rolling numbers and, and see, you know, you can see, if, 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 you know, a guy that hits 280, look at increments, overlapping increments, and, you know, how, how streaky, how high and above or below 280 is he. So I think it, it can be used for research, too. So that's basically what it's going to be. It's going to be an in-season. Well, it's a, right now it's a it's a research tool, but come this season it will be available with my, with my, uh, with my <clears throat> excuse me, my platinum service that, yeah, you, you type the name in or use it from a pull-down menu. And you can see how the player has done, understanding that you know that there's, you know, hot and cold streaks are what they are. Still, it's nice to be able to see three or four, you know, whatever, up to 20 players, I believe, just right there in front of you, and all you need to do is type the names. Right, and the advantage is that if you're doing a free agent move and you've got 10 guys to choose from, you just enter all their names and see. Most important, I think, to me, not would not be the uh, the counting stats per se or batting average or anything. It'd be plate appearances. Yep. I, w- I want to know who's playing uh, and who has been playing recently. I think that's huge. Uh, can people test drive Ziddy and uh, how do they sign up? Yeah, well, what I've done is I've got the I've downloaded. I'm sorry, I've I've made, I've made available for download the one with 200. I need to get the year right. 2000 because I say 2019 stats and kind of. You know, what am I doing talking to you? If I know how the season's going to end up, what am I doing here? But with the 2018 stats, so it's not so much, you know, so you basically can just see how it works. Uh, you can do some research with it. That's available for free uh, from on mastersball.com. Uh, I believe at this point it's the the second story in. I think my tribute to our friend Lar is the lead story. But uh, the, the next story in is, is Ziddy and the downloadable link. And the one that's going to be available in season it will be, will be part of my uh, part of my um, part of my service. And one of the things I've started to do now is um, on uh, online tutorials, if you will, where I I have a bunch of Excel spreadsheets, and I'll you know you get the the software that records your screen, and you put a microphone on, and you can talk. One of the upcoming tutorials is going to be how to use Zitty. So if you you, you can um, it, it's explained. But it's a lot easier if you if you see the Excel spreadsheet in front of you, and you hear my goofy voice and and see me typing in names and pointing out what I'm looking for, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So at some point I will have a tutorial 
on Ziti in the next couple of weeks. I was going to ask you how you baked Ziti, but uh, <laughs> I thought the pun was too lame, so I didn't. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, well, you know. Actually, I think, the, I think the emanation was, I think it was actually with our friend Jason Gray. It was like a... What 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 would your what would your uh what would your rap name be? And I think it's it, it, it'd be T Ziddy, and you know he just started calling me Ziddy, and that became my uh whenever I did something weird or out there, he's like oh, Ziddy's coming out, there's, there's Ziddy, so that just became sort of the private joke between us, my uh my my alter ego. I had a friend who, uh, because my initials used to call me P Diddy all the time, uh, <laughs> well, <there you laughs> drove go. me crazy. Because I, I, I'm not. <laughs> I couldn't name one P Diddy song. I'm not. A, I just don't happen to be a fan of that genre. Yeah. But I, you know, I, I've heard. You know, I hear it mentioned enough, and it just. I don't remember if I was uh, under the alkafluence of alcohol at the time, but um, whatever. Yeah, I can't name any of his songs either, but I wouldn't mind having his money. Uh, you're listening to Baseball <laughs> HQ Radio, Patrick Dav with Todd Zolan. Todd, uh, before the season, I like to ask our experts to talk about players they think will be boons and banes for the rest of this year. 2019 coming up, let's start with some boons. These are guys you think should interest our listeners for one reason or another. Start in the American League with a boon hitter. I kind of like what where Justin Bohr landed. Uh, Angels first baseman, D.H., now he's got some competition with Shohei Otani and Albert Pujols for, for plate appearances. And I'm just knocking on wood and hoping the Angels do the right thing and and leave Pujols to a platoon role and not try to squeeze money out of the contract, et cetera. It's, it's, it's a sunk cost. We've It's already come out that Otani is likely going to miss opening day. And he's going to need off days because, you know, unlike Didi Gregorius, He's going to be pitching next year in 2020. So part of the rehab is going to need to be getting him ready for pitching the following year. So he's not going to be, you know, once he's back, he's back. He's going to be missing time. And that's going to open up time for Bohr. And one of the sort of under-the-radar, I don't know, events, not much events, but happenings of last year, is they, they lowered the home run line. I don't want to say lowered the wall because they really didn't lower the wall. They just re, they painted the yellow line lower in Angel Stadium, and at least last year, according to my numbers, Angel Stadium played 134 for lefty hitters. That's huge. It was one of the best home run parks for lefty hitters, whether or not that, you know, it's one year. We know park factors are fluctuating, but at the very least, it's easier to hit home runs in Angel Stadium than it has been in the past. So uh, because of the, in my mind, increased playing time and potential for, for homers, I really like where Justin Bohr is. How about in the National League, a boon hitter? I thought I thought this even before the recent uh, recent yesterday uh, uh, the, earlier this week trade with uh, JL, JT Realmuto. I like I think I think Andrew McCutcheon is getting the old guy penalty a little bit too much. He's getting a little too much uh, of a of an old guy tax. Philadelphia's a great place to hit. McCutcheon has hit in some of the more difficult parks. I mean, you know, kind of a park factor guy. Pittsburgh and San Francisco, the his numbers have been suppressed in those venues. It's not going to be the case in Philly. It's such a great lineup. I uh, I, I, I think McCutcheon is being given a two- or three-round penalty, a $5-$6 tax on and, and auctions, and I really like what he's going to do this year. 20 homers, 14 RBIs last year, 255 batting average. And if you're in an OBP league, holy cow. Uh, I really like Andrew McCutcheon as well. Uh, over to the mound, how about an American League pitcher who will be a boon? 
I kind of like, uh, I mentioned Angels before. I mean, uh, I, I like, was there a quieter 180-inning season than what Andrew Heaney threw last year? Probably not. Yeah, and, and I to me that's a that's a great that's a great uh, harbinger of of uh, you know is he going to be able to you know throw yeah he threw 180 he can throw you know we think of the angels and the injuries I kind of you know I, he he's got the foundation there I think he builds on the skills the the outfield defense even you know with with the closer with the lower line he's still got some he's got Trout out there and Upton and, and Cole Calhoun good defense. I think I think Andrew Heaney is set to. I almost said Tim, <laughs> our friend Tim. I think because uh, I have Heaney written down. I almost. Uh, I I think our friend Andrew Heaney is gonna uh, could take the next step. And in the National League, Haboon pitcher. When I say Ross Stripling, oh, he, of course he's going to be good. Um, and that maybe it's because I'm still thinking about the the strategy of 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 waiting on pitching. But Stripling's the kind of guy that you want. If he if he doesn't. And he he also fits into our replacement level type of guy. When he pitches on the mound on a per appearance basis, he's near elite, but he's not being judged so because he's not expected to start 30 games. When he's on the mound, I want he's a starter for me. So I want, especially when I'm you know fading pitching, I want Ross Stripling uh, on my roster. And again, it's not because I think he's going to pitch better than you think he's going to pitch. I think he's going to pitch more, and I'm designing my roster to take advantage of that. So when you look at a guy like Ross Stripling who's being discounted for injury risk reasons, how how do you account for it in your in your planning, uh, your roster planning? Do you bump him up around over the ADP, or is it more of a play by ear situation? You know what the thing? I mean, I think now I'm going back to the old fashioned SP one, SP two, SP three. To me, in a, in a mixed league, if he was starting 30 games, he would probably be an SP3. And I'm getting him, in, specifically, again, these draft champions where you draft 50 rounds, uh, I'm getting him as my sixth or seventh starting pitcher. And, yeah, he's going to be sitting on the bench, but I've got, you know, I've got a 50-man roster. So I will, I will sacrifice that roster spot for the whatever it might be, 10, 12, 13 weeks that he's in my roster. In the weeks, I'll, I'll use another pitcher or I'll use a reliever in his stead. So I think it's you know, maybe maybe it doesn't directly, you know, what guy do you think is going to pitch better than other people's pitch? pitch? Maybe, maybe it's an unfair, uh, you know, not the best way to answer the question, but that's, the kind of, that's a guy that I am getting well ahead of his ADP. I don't even need to take him that much ahead of his ADP because that's how much he's falling. He, it's amazing to me that and maybe he just doesn't have a house on it, and he's a little bit older than um, than you might realize because of his, his track record, or whatever. I think he's in his high twenties as far as age goes. So as we're talking, maybe I can come up with a a pitcher who I think is going to, you know, an underlying metric do better than conventional wisdom might think. You know what, Zach Eflin. There's a, there there Zach Eflin. Um, everybody's looking to Pavetta for breaking out on a lower level. I think Pavetta. I'm sorry, I think Eflin has got some underlying metrics that say we could be seeing, relative to where he is, the next level for Zach Eflin. Todd Zola's Boons, Justin Bohr of Los Angeles, Andrew McCutcheon of Philadelphia, Andrew Heaney of the Angels as well, and uh, Ross Stripling and Zach Eflin. Now let's move over to the Baines, Todd. These are guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious. So let's again start in the American League with a hitter. Who's a Bane for you? Uh, I'm going to go with Luke Voigt. Um, Yankees, 
and, you know, he's got the job now. Um, he just he crushed it when he came over from St. Louis. I think his home run per fly ball was 41%. And admittedly, it is helped by he goes opposite field and he can take it as a right-handed hitter. He can take advantage of the short porch in right field. But I think the Yankees, there's just there's too much. There's too many other options. And he's still striking out a ton. And I just, I, I, I'm not, maybe if he's my utility, I'll take a chance because I can replace him. But for the price he's going for, I think there's more downside than, than, than upside. I mean, you know, it's not an anti-Yankee thing. I've already mentioned earlier how much I like Judge and Stanton. I just, uh, I'm a little bit leery of Luke Voigt, you know, doesn't have that flashy glove. I think that uh, he gets in one of those slumps and they shuffle the lineup a little bit and he could be <laughs> Wally pipped out of a job. In the National League, who's a hitter you think could be a bane? I'm going to go Ozzie Albies, and for a slightly different reason, and this may become more apparent in spring training, but I see Albies, especially now that they re-signed Marcakis and revamped the order, I think Albies can hit lower in the order, and that's going to cost him plate appearances, and it's going to cost him probably chances to run, because I don't know that you're going to want to have him run as much with a, with a pitcher coming up that, you know, I don't know if he's going to hit eighth, but he very well may. So, and I, I think I'm a little skeptical about the talent as well. I think other people are higher on the pure talent. Now, that the kid is, I don't even know if he's 21 yet. The future is bright. I'm just saying for this coming year, I think people are still paying for the shiny new toy, the hype, and he could very well lose. I mean, right now, Ronald Acuna is hitting cleanup, and they're saying Enciarte is going to lead off. These these things can change, uh, you know, especially if Enciarte starts out slow and Alsby starts out hot. But I think people aren't factoring in the possibility that Albie gets fewer, 50 fewer plate appearances this year than he did last year. Still puts him over 600. Uh, by the way, he turned 22 this January. Still That's very still young, young for the big <laughs> leagues. That's the, he's still pretty good. Uh, Ozzie Albies, though, I've been seeing all kinds of touting saying, uh, be, be wary about Ozzie Albies. Oh, be wary? Oh, so I'm not new. I'm not. Okay. You're not you're not right, well. breaking a ton of new ground. I've seen some people saying there's there's all kinds of the uh, idea of playing time is really critical. I think in people being cautious about Aussie Albies, I've I've seen them falling a little bit in some of the ADP things that I've been maybe, monitoring. Maybe people have heard me. <laughs> maybe so. <laughs> Over to the mound again. Who's an American League pitcher is a bane for you? Carlos Rodon, and I just he the injuries aside, people love the talent. They love the stuff. He had a stretch last year. He was lights out, and people are pointing at that stretch. Fortunately, he ended the year poorly. Um, people are paying for the potential, and maybe this is tied into the fact that I don't, I, with, with the way I'm handling pitching thus far, or at least in some leagues handling pitching, I can't afford a mistake. I need upside. I need, I need Dylan Bundy. I don't need Carlos Rodon. So, um, I'd much rather take a chance on Bundy than Carlos Rodon. I just, I think people are still investing in the, in what they're hoping. And between the injury and man, he just didn't look good last year at the end. And and guaranteed rate park is under the radar a pitcher's park. It gives up homers, but it's a pitcher's park. It doesn't give up the runs because those fly balls that don't leave the yard are caught. And it, it, it keeps runs down, so and not it doesn't even have to do with that. 
So I'm, I'm, if I'm a year, you know, if, if I'm wrong, I'll shake the hand of the guy that drafted Rodon and beat me, but I don't see it happening. And finally, a pitcher in the National League who's a bane. You Darvish, and it's similar in that, you know, people, they still love to chase those strikeouts. I've never been a Darvish guy, even when he was healthy, and I think people are just assuming that he's going to be healthy on the Cubs, this, that, the other thing. Uh, again, I could be wrong, but I think even, even you know, they, they say, went back when he was an ace. Well, look at the numbers. I think he only had one year where he could be considered an ace, and, and I maybe had some bad luck in a couple other years, but I don't think he was that consistent elite pitcher that people thought he was, you know, when till he gets healthy again. Well, even when he was healthy, he only had one maybe year and a half where he was as good as where people are drafting him. Well, Harold Nichols, who does the National League player news here at Baseball HQ Radio, told me he just finished trading you, Darvish. He got Garrett Hampson and Adam Eaton. Not yeah, a bad well, deal. Well, I mean, it's, it's needs, but I could rubber stamp that. I'll sign off on that. Me too. Uh, Todd, before we go, I spoke briefly, probably too briefly last week on the pod about Laura Michaels, who died earlier this year. And you knew Laura a lot longer than I did. Uh, give us a brief uh, summary of your thoughts about a good friend to all of us. Yeah, no, I, it, it's just, um, it was, uh, it, it's, it's, we knew he was uh, under the weather. And, you know, Laura, if you knew Laura, you know, the joke is he has nine lives and he was already used up 12 of them. He's had some health issues since day one, literally, and uh, it's always gotten over. So that's kind of, you know, we just figured he'd get through this as well. It didn't happen. Uh, he, he left us at the end of December. It's, uh, he is greatly missed. Um, you know, I, a business associate, et cetera, all that stuff is great, but he's just been a wonderful friend, a friend to all of us, um, and he, he, leaving a lasting memory anybody who's met him and you read some of the tributes and some of the stuff on twitter i wonder i can't I, I just how did he have the time to touch so many lives it just kind of blows my mind yeah he was a terrific guy uh, and i know that you've uh, kind of stepped in a little bit behind the scenes to take over lars website creative sports with a particular aim in mind which is kind of carrying on his legacy yeah now lar had Lar had, you know, beyond he had big, he had, he had, he had some grandiose plans for the website, and they were great. And to be honest, that's one of the reasons why we split into Masters Ball and Creative Sports because we, it wasn't the best platform to do what he wanted to do when we were running the site that we had. So that was part of the impetus behind split. And he, the split was only a year. He was in the process, and this, you know, he was, he had some plans for January 1st of this year. Unfortunately, they never came to fruition. But what I'm doing, you know. Part of what Lar did on Creative Sports was invited unknown writers and gave them a platform, and he helped mentor them. And several of them have gone on, as the expression goes, bigger and better things. Some in mainstream media, not just not just fantasy. And they got their start because Lar took a chance and helped them out behind the scenes. So that's the part of the legacy that I'm going to be carrying on. I'm not going to have any forward-facing content i'm you can i'm in, i'm in enough places already but i do feel that i can offer some expertise you know paying it forward if you will i can offer some expertise and some mentoring to some new writers so what i'm doing is uh we're going to be keeping the, the the article a day covering all the different sports and i'm in the process of recruiting a a, a staff to continue the site and that's the it's a you know non-paying positions but the idea being 
you write six months, you write eight months, you write a season, whatever it might be, you get yourself a resume, and there are people out there that are paying, and it, hopefully knocking what looks pretty good that you wrote for Creative Sports and got some tutelage from some guy named Zola, and um, I probably even know the person that you're applying for and give you recommendation, and that's what I'm going to be doing. So if, if anybody's interested, uh, if you go to Creative Sports 2, there is a, a box on the right side. It's a, it's a GoFundMe. We, we're, we're, we're supporting the site via generous donations of, of friends and just people who are fans of the site and you know even though even though they're unpaid positions it still it still costs money to keep a website alive so that's that's what we're doing there and within in, in, in a, on the site itself there's a new menu bar i believe it says writing for cs and if you click there if you're interested in, in doing and joining the staff there's a submission form uh, asking a bunch of questions what, what sports you write about can you provide a sample etc so if you're interested in, in actually writing for the site um, creativesports2.com if you forget the two it's okay that goes there too so creativesports.com and uh, again if you're interested the GoFundMe is still active um, and you know more, more than willing to uh, to review the submissions and potentially join the site as a writer Okay, Todd, that's great news. Uh, it's it's nice of you to take that over and keep it going, uh, in memory of Laura, who was who was a uh, he was a terrific guy, and he talked to anybody. He was an intelligent, well-read, well-spoken guy, very opinionated. And uh, as I said last week in Master Notes, uh, he was a friend of mine, and I'm going to miss him. Uh, this has been a great session from a good friend as well. Exactly what I expected, of course. Uh, tell us where listeners can keep up with Todd Zola. They can keep up with me, uh, you know, on returning to, in the season, returning to ESPN with the Daily Notes. I'm still at Rotowire, and uh, my own stuff we alluded to before at Masters Ball. And I, this isn't breaking news. You don't have a scoop. It has been announced, but um, it's a it's a different it's a different form of media. But uh, I will be making my debut as a co-host of the Rotowire show on Sunday uh, from 1 to 3 p.m. on SiriusXM. I believe this week I'm working with Derek Van Riper, who's been a, a guest, and, and, and other weeks I'll be working with Jerry, Jeff Erickson. But uh, at least through the spring, um, going to be a co-host of on the on the radio. So uh, Sundays from one to three p.m. That's one to three p.m. Eastern, I trust. Eastern. I'm sorry. Yep. Okay. Well, good luck with that. Uh, good luck with everything that goes on this year. Good luck with your leagues, and of course, uh, later on in uh, in the season. Uh, when we get our Baseball HQ Radio podcast schedule back on uh, the the tracks, as they as they say, then uh, we'll be having you on a weekly basis with Talk with Todd. So we'll look forward to that as well. Uh, as will as will I look forward. To, and we'll maybe talk again before, but look forward to seeing you in uh, in New York, St. Patrick's Day weekend for Doubt Wars. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball and RotoWire, and is a longtime contributor to Baseball HQ Radio. When we return, our Baseball HQ commentaries, the Frequent Flyer, Market Watch, Position Preview, and Master Notes are all coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In his speculator column, Ryan Bloomfield has those forecaster downside speculations we talked about earlier in the show. In his batting buyer's guide, in the pitch... In the Starting Pitcher's Buyer's Guide, columnist Stephen Nickrand has that analysis of expected control and DOM gainers for 2019. And in The Big Hurt, no, 
And in playing time tomorrow, Matt Dodge focuses on roster news in the bullpens of the American League Central. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sample of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation and facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today and tomorrow, buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis, plus all kinds of tools, the player projections, daily dashboard, leading indicators, the custom draft guide. These are content and tools you can use to improve your team's and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have the Market Watch position preview and master notes. And leading off, it's the Frequent Flyer, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. Here with a look at Texas third baseman Patrick Wisdom is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Sure. Conventional wisdom suggests that 33-year-old Osdrubal Cabrera will be the starting third baseman for the Texas Rangers in 2019. And, yes, quoting the 2019 baseball forecaster, Osdrubal Cabrera should be drafted for his reliable output based upon his A-grade consistency and for his roster flexibility. However, don't expect a draft room oohs and ahs, according to the forecaster. Your turn, yawn. So where should you look for those draft room oohs and ahs? How about a former first-rounder? That's right, selected by the St. Louis Cardinals in the first round, 52nd overall, in the compensation A round of the 2012 Major League Amateur Player Draft, now 27-year-old Patrick Wisdom is currently flying under the radar in most fantasy leagues. Really, it's pretty easy to see why. Patrick Wisdom only hit four home runs with a 260 batting average at the big league level in 2018 after debuting on August 12th. That's good, but not necessarily great production. Prior to that, before his August 12th call-up, Patrick Wisdom hit 15 home runs with a 288 batting average in 2018 for Memphis, the Cardinals' AAA affiliate, giving him solid but unspectacular results in 2018. That's why Patrick Wisdom like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available deep into your 2019 draft. Ironically, solid but unspectacular is also the way the 2019 baseball forecaster describes Osdrubal Cabrera's 2018 season. <laughs> On the other hand, Patrick Wisdom did belt 31 diggers at the AAA level in 2017 and was a participant in the AAA Home Run Derby in 2018. In other words, Patrick Wisdom has demonstrated the ability to hit for power at the AAA level. A closer look shows that Patrick Wisdom's 137 linear weighted power index in 2017, which BaseballHQ.com uses to measure a batter's pure power relative to the average power of the rest of the league, is well above the league average benchmark of 100, as is his 113 linear weighted power index from 2018. Although we at BaseballHQ.com believe that he's selling out to generate that power, sacrificing batting average, and striking out a ton, Patrick Wisdom nevertheless has the ability to generate oohs and ahs on a regular basis with regular playing time, 
something he should see more of in 2019. And maybe Patrick's recent wisdom, as displayed on Twitter last December, says it best. I've heard that everything is bigger and better in Texas, and I can't wait to get going. I'm stoked for what's to come. We are too, Patrick. And chances are you will be stoked too when you consider drafting Texas Rangers power-hitting third baseman Patrick Wisdom, our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for the Market Watch Position Preview. This is based on Matt Cedarholm's work at BaseballHQ.com, looking for players whose current ADPs don't line up with Baseball HQ valuations. Here with a scan of middle infielders is Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. The universal draft grid from our 2019 baseball forecaster shows the top two tiers with as many middle infielders as there are outfielders, 15. But that's still only one per team in a 15-team mixed league. And the closer we look, the worse it gets. Only four second basemen are in the top two tiers, and all of them are in the American League. Five of the six second basemen in the third tier are National Leaguers, but after that, it's pretty slim pickings from the fourth tier down to our seventh and final tier. Over at shortstop, the National League has a 6-4 edge in the top two tiers with Machado still unsigned as of this recording. But again, all five of the third tier shortstops are in the American League. The fourth tier shortstops seem a bit stronger than the second base group, but we'll still have our work cut out for us to find three strong middle infielders and it will require laser-like focus. Let's start our shopping list by perusing Matt Cedarholm's middle infielder Market Pulse reports. Our rankings reveal a red flag for Carlos Correa. We have him at 123, but his early ADP is 74 slots and five rounds sooner at 49. On the flip side, Xander Bogarts also has an early ADP of 49, but he's a bargain there because that's 22 slots later than our ranking of 27. Preseason lightning rod Adalberto Mondesi has an early ADP of 44, 21 slots sooner than our ranking of 65. The other side of that coin is Jose Peraza, who has a ranking of 76 and isn't going until 99, making him a 23-pick bargain. Jurickson Profar's perceived 2018 breakout gives him an ADP of 117, an 11-round overpay compared to our ranking of 295 for a red flag that's on fire. Profar's season stats were substantially the same as Eduardo Escobar's. We rank Escobar at 143, and he's going at 172. That means you can pass on Profar, wait three rounds for Escobar, and get a player we rank 10 rounds higher. Ahmed Rosario is a good mid-round source of speed in round 9 at 141. We have Rosario ranked at 88, a four-round discount of 53 slots. Andrelton Simmons is a nice value in the 10th round. We have Simmons ranked at 110 and he's going at 219. That's a discount of 109 slots or 5 rounds. And the best late round speed play is Cattell Marte. His early ADP is 228 and we have him at 168 for a 4 round discount. Coming full circle at shortstop, few owners in your drafts are likely to guess whose career stats are nearly identical to Correa's but is being drafted 18 rounds later. It's Enrique Quique Hernandez. The earliest Hernandez has gone is the 15th round, so target him there. 
Now let's look at second base. Our only early round red flag for overdrafting goes to Ozzy Albies. We have Albies ranked at 82 and he's going at 52 or two rounds too soon. He's followed in our rankings by eight bargains of three to seven rounds each at ADPs 94 to 148 or rounds seven to 10. Those targets are Scooter Jeanette, Jonathan Villar, Travis Shaw, D. Gordon, Daniel Murphy, Rugnet Odor, and new National Leaguers Robinson Cano and Brian Dozier. Post-type prospect Yoan Makata is going in the 10th round at 156, but we have him ranked six rounds later at 249. You can wait two rounds and get Jonathan Scope at 189. Scope is ranked at 98, making him a six-round bargain in round 12. In rounds 18 to 26, the best bargain is Starlin Castro. We rank Castro in round 9 at 135, and he's going in round 21 at 319. Nico Goodrum is another good deal, going at 3.06, 37 slots later than his ranking of 2.69. Goodrum could still be there for you as late as round 20. We're waving our red warning flag for another new National Leaguer. Jed Lowry is going in round 18 at 2.74, but our rankings have him five rounds later at 3.45 in round 23. ADP's 347 to 395 in rounds 23 to 26 of the end game have two savvy picks and two sappy picks. Going about 10 rounds earlier than our rankings are Adam Frazier and Luis Urias, and going about 10 rounds later than our rankings are Jason Kipnis and Eduardo Nunez. Let's conclude with a quick list of middle infield prospects for dynasty leaguers. Fernando Tatis Jr. may be only weeks away from his National League debut, and Bo Pichette may not be far behind in the American League. Keston Hura could make it to the NL in the second half, and Wander Franco looks like he'll be headed to the AL by 2020. To recap, collecting three above-average middle infielders in an AL-only league will be a challenge, and in an NL-only league will require the most thorough planning. Use our custom draft guide to get player rankings and values specific to your leagues and stay ahead of your league mates with our Market Pulse series. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com, and he has his Market Watch position previews here on the podcast every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about the real Muto trade. In case you missed the news and weren't listening earlier in the show, Miami completed its latest exercise in destroying the village so they could save it by swapping star catcher J.T. Real Muto to Philadelphia. In return, the Marlins got Sixto Sanchez, a 9C pitching prospect who flashed a near 100-mile-an-hour fastball in A-ball before getting shut down with a bulky elbow and who later missed a scheduled foray into the Arizona Fall League because of what was called a soreness in the clavicle, which sounds like the last album of an 80s British synth band. Jorge Alfaro, a catcher with a 36% career strikeout rate and a 41% career hit rate was also in the package, as was Will Stewart, a perfect everyman name for an everyman 7C prospect who sinkerballed his way last year to a 206 ERA in the single A Sally League while fanning just seven batters every nine innings. Miami also received an international bonus slot, which sounds like something pensioners plug silver dollars into on the floor at the Brigada. In the sports webzine The Athletic, former big league GM and current media omnipresence Jim Bowden gave the Phillies an A grade on this deal because Real Muto's really good and exactly what the team needed to solidify an already good-looking lineup. Q 
Curiously, though, Bowden also gave Miami a B-plus, saying that their return on the deal should be better than what they got for Giancarlo Stanton, Marcel Ozuna, and Christian Yelich. You might remember those players as the core of a 2017 Miami team that was sixth in the National League in runs scored, and Stanton was the MVP. The Marlins traded all three of them, and D. Gordon. Two other hitters from that good 2017 team were likewise dispatched. Justin Bauer was traded to the Phillies in 2018 and Real Muter this year. I realize that Bowden has forgotten more about baseball than I'll ever know, although given my sad record with my car keys, I'll go toe-to-toe with anyone on my ability to forget stuff. But still, I have to wonder about Bowden's analysis, because he seems to be assuming that these good players will be the foundation of some future successful Marlins team. On their track record, it's hard to see why anybody would start an analysis with this assumption. The dismantling of the 2017 Marlins was the 20th annual attempt to rebuild the franchise by getting rid of all of its best players. So let's suppose that Sixto Sanchez's forearm maintains its close relationship with his elbow until he's the next J.R. Richard. And let's suppose that Jorge Alfaro learns to actually make contact more than two-thirds of the time and can maintain that 40% hit rate despite foot speed that makes John Cruck look like Usain Bolt. And let's suppose Stewart hugely outperforms his baseball HQ projection and becomes a number three starter. What makes anyone think they'll do it with the Marlins? The 1997 sell-off got back a bunch of prospects, of whom only Derek Lee and A.J. Burnett amounted to anything, and of course they were let go when they got within range of veteran money. Kyle Glazer of Baseball America reported that the 2003 championship team actually added some established players and fielded above 500 teams for the next two years. But after 2005, because state and local officials refused to pay for a new baseball stadium, then-owner Jeffrey Loria ordered his front office to trade everything with a pulse. Out went Carlos Delgado, Paul Loduca, Josh Beckett, Mike Lowell, Luis Castillo, the last survivor of the 1997 champions, Juan Pierre and Guillermo Mota, and they let Burnett and Juan Encarnacion leave as free agents. The 2008-2009 team cashed in some of the resulting prospects, like Hanley Ramirez, to again finish over 500 for a couple of years, but again the team let its stars walk rather than paying them. The rest, as we know, is history. They're content to cash revenue-sharing checks and flounder around at a 455 clip since the 2010 season. The team hasn't made the playoffs since that 2003 series. There are multiple reasons the team approaches the game this way. The main one is that it's very profitable. The Marlins ride their young stars under the early career salary restrictions that are built into the labor contract. Then they cash them in when they're close to getting paid and let someone else pay them. In their place, the team picks up more young prospects and starts the cycle all over again. Lather, rinse, repeat. Sam Miller of ESPN reported in the aftermath of the trade that 23 of the Marlins' all-time top 25 players by war have now been traded away. And as we all know, some of those players were given big, long contracts so the Marlins could puff out their chests and declare that they were making a commitment to winning. Easier to get stadium money that way. But those contracts were back-loaded. The big money was always delayed until the later part of the deal. And of course, before the big money kicked in, the Marlins traded the player and let some other team, one that was actually committed to winning, pick up the bloated back end of the deal. The classic example, of course, was Stanton, with whom the team signed a 13-year, $325 million extension after 2014 to avoid arbitration. 
but the total they paid in the first three years of the extension was just $30 million. That's $10 million a year for the game's premier young slugger. Stanton's salary was set to jump up to $25 million in 2018 and go up from there. And guess what? Off he goes to the Yankees, letting the Steinbrenners carry $295 million that was left on the deal. Miami's ownership has been like that sneaky creep at the office who goes out to the pub for Friday drinks and pays for one nacho platter, then later on lets someone else grab the check for steak dinners and a bottle of Cristal. So as soon as Sanchez, and less likely Stewart, turn out to be good, they'll be allowed to contribute to the Marlins' next fourth-place finish for a couple of years, Alfaro will play on that team, and just when the player salary rules allow them to get the big raises, they'll be sent packing. It's lather, rinse, repeat. And only the fans and the game get taken to the cleaners. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox in the weekly free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. You can also read Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February the 8th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number two of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, Todd Zola, for Masters Ball and Rotowire. Be on ESPN a little later this season. Todd's a great guy. He's a terrific analyst. And he's a longtime friend of Baseball HQ Radio and me personally. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. And our Market Watch position previews were presented by Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes or Stitcher or Pocket Cast, wherever you get your pods. And if you're allowed to, leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a strong rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.